Hey, Carl here with a very special offer for music to code by. You can now get the whole 20 track collection for $19.99 while electrons last. Go to my new store at pwop.e-junkie.com. That's pwop.e-junkie.com. And get it now before I change my mind. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And welcome to another Geek Out. How you doing, buddy? It's only been a year and a half. I know, but you've been busy. I have been. In theory, I've been trying to finish a book that I've still not finished. But you're, you are working on it. I believe I am, in the, I am in the spaghetti code phase of the book, which right. is to say as more stuff comes in, as I'm trying to figure stuff out and I realize I've made a mistake... Yeah. It ripples through the whole book. Right. And of course, you don't have metadata tags and stuff to no. figure out. You just have search, full it, text no, search did, to find clearly out. Clearly, I needed to do test-driven writing here. Like that, you know, it's all my fault. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, although I've been using Scrivener, which is a really interesting tool for organizing books. And it, it works really well for a history book. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is almost like... A, an editor for books that you then compile the book from. Like it's yeah. fascinating. It's a, it's a ability to organize information. That's it's been cool. a great experience. Uh, Rob Connery turned me onto that back in the curious moon days. Cobb Ronnery. Cobb Ronnery. Yes. I like Rob. I haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, I check in with him every so often. He's a, he's a dear friend. You he know, is. they, I, I think the, that cur curious moon book pushed us to a new level. Yeah. The moment where, you know, we were <laughs> arguing over his book is like, listen, I'm not going to do what you're saying. I really don't want that to break our friendship. Are you going to be okay when I say no? <laughs> that's like, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be okay. I'm very comfortable with you being wrong, Rob. That's okay. I know. I'm you're telling him he's wrong and he's writing fiction. <laughs> no, you're doing it yes. wrong. You're doing this wrong. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Oh, uh, yeah. How do you make databases sci-fi? That's pretty cool. Uh, well, and with real data, like it was such a good idea for a book. And if you yeah. haven't, I'll include a link. You should read this book. You'll enjoy it. And if you do the exercises, like taking NASA's actual data hmm. and going through the the story of and analyzing that data and the discoveries that Cassini made, like everything about it is fantastic and real. Yeah. Right down to the fact that NASA changed the way they were storing data halfway through the mission. That's so cool. Right? Just like a real, it's a normal database, right? It's like they messed everything it's, up. It's like a, it's like a real world mystery that you can do. Yeah. That you can be a part of. Yeah. That, you know doing analytics on well and nasa's always made all their data available like do you remember the uh the bear sheet lander the, mm. the one that that hit the ground or no it was the the indian lander the vikram lander that uh because nasa publishes all the lro data all the lunar reconnaissance orbiter data the person that found where the lander crashed was just a a, per, a, a random guy it was a comp sci mm. guy Wow. Who, who was, who'd written his own tools and was analyzing the LRO data. And he's the one who found the spectral difference that showed the impact. So I was like, Oh, found your lander. It's a big old light spot on the moon now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how long has it been since we did a geek out? Well, last time we did a quote unquote regular geek out, just me doing the research and mm. then you asking all the good questions was the superconductor geek out, which is November of 2018. 2018. Yeah. 
two years ago. Now, we ago. did a couple of geek outs in 2019, but those were with guests, right? We did the one on music with David Frangioni, which yeah. was awesome. That was like, awesome. God, that guy's so smart. And just a really fun conversation. Yep. And the other one I tagged as a geek out too was the home automation show mm. uh, that we did with Madge Christensen. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh, but those are the only two we did in 2019. And then, so for 2020, like, this is the only one, which is why we've, we've put aside enough time to just talk. Yeah. This, I, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be two hours long or not. We're at the beginning of recording it. I'll tell you at the end how long it was. I think it's going to be a long one. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take one for the team because I haven't talked to you in a while. And, and now I get to see you through the magic of yeah, Zoom. We, we're, yeah. we're Zooming at each other. So it's luxurious. It's luxurious, right? 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 I was one thing I have been doing in the pandemic more is I've been using video um, for my interviews on run ass, mm. but I haven't been recording it because there's one, it's one thing to, to be able to see someone when you talk to them and you have yeah. a better conversation. No two ways about that. Yeah. But making it into video to use is kind of a different thing. It and is. That's yeah. been an issue for, for some guests. And so I was just like, listen, I'm, I'm not, I, this is for us. It's for nobody yeah. else. And, yeah. and even for you and I who have been talking together remotely for um, so many years, what, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, it's still a luxury. Yeah, it really is. It is. So before we get going, I need to tell you about something that I've been working on. Cause you've been busy. I've been busy, man. This, uh, yeah. This pandemic has lit a fire under me, coding-wise. I mean, I've got, I've been doing Blazor Train and Blazor Research. I've been doing workshops. I did a workshop for Dev Intersection. Yeah. Um, I did a longer workshop for a customer recently, a three-day Blazor workshop. And by the way, if you're interested in those, just email me, carl at appvnext.com or carl at Franklin's net. But I've also been writing software. Remember that software I did a while ago where it's kind of like Zoom and meetings, but instead of the meeting being the unit of authorization, the the room, you go into a room and then you can jump into these different conversations. Right. Yeah. So that's still there. It's still on the back burner. Um, but um, I got sucked into a project that I'm working on for a customer right now in Blazor and uh, it happened over, this one happened over the weekend of Christmas. Uh, I've always wanted to solve the problem of uh, latency when people want to get together and make music together. And yeah. we talked about this before, right? There's these things out there that kind of do it, but there's always this latency. If the promise is, you know, low latency, real time, one, two, three, go, and everybody jams in time. It's a myth. Like, because yeah, the speed of light is hard to beat. Speed of light is hard to beat. And, you know, sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not. I have seen, because of course we've had this year of the pandemic. Yeah. And so you're seeing lots of that sort of Zoom mosaic right. musicians playing together. Right. But it's an illusion, right? I mean, you've helped put those together. I, How put, they I just done? put one together for the Eastern Connecticut Symphony Orchestra. It was Sleigh Ride. Wow. And there was 40-some-odd instrumentalists that, first of all, they all went into the studio and recorded their parts, and their audio engineer put them all together into a symphony, like into a real orchestra recording. One at a time. Because of COVID, they couldn't have them all come in at a time. Right. So, they all use the same studio, but they use it individually. Yeah. And then what they did was they recorded their parts on their phones, and they started playing to a metronome, and it was one, two, three, four, clap. 
two, three, four, music starts, whatever. So they right. all clapped on the, at the same time so that I could line up all of these tracks. Now, 44 video tracks in with audio in Adobe Premiere, and my computer was like... <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> as much as you could do. <laughs> so it was a great excuse for me to get a new computer. So I ordered parts and you helped me sort of say, oh, no, yeah, don't get that I argued one. about video cards. Yeah. What's, your, what's your editing? You used to edit in Vegas. What do you edit in these Oh, days? Vegas was years and years ago. I use Premiere yeah. Pro now. Premiere Pro. Premiere okay. Pro. So the Adobe stack. Yeah, the Adobe stack. Totally. Uh, but it works that, great. That's the interesting part about these musicians is they have to be good musicians because they have to keep time by themselves. They well, are they're listening to they're listening alone. to a track, like right? they're listening to a, a click, click track. track. Yep. Yeah. So they're fine, but they do have to keep their parts, you know. But they're professionals. You would hope. Yeah. Well, they are. <laughs> they are all professional symphony members, so they're they're good, and they did a great I job. Do, I pop into like watch the Colbert Report every so often on YouTube, and and that the the John Baptiste band, who's one of the few, I got to see that guy live someday. Yeah, right. Uh, but but they do a composite shot for their stings in between, mm. you know, uh, scenes, uh, sets for for Colbert, and they look like they're playing together. Like they, right. those guys are clearly performers, and you know they're not. Right. Like. It's a, an illusion and it just propagates this problem. Right. And so, but everybody expects it to work. That's the thing. Like nobody yeah, understands because that because when we have conversations over Zoom, Skype or whatever, there doesn't appear to be any latency, but yeah. there is, you know, there's a split mm -hmm. second there between when I say something and you hear it and then you respond. It's just good enough for conversation that it's not, you know, sometimes it does rear its ugly head, even in a conversation where sure. I start talking and then you will start talking at the same time and one of us will have to step back. But for the most part, that works. So people expect it to work where you could just play together or sing or clap or whatever, but it doesn't work. So, yeah. so my solution is a, what do I call it? Like a round robin kind of daisy chain thing. So the first mm -hmm. person in the chain is the administrator or the leader. And they basically have a list of all the other people in the chain that are going to record. And you put them to, you put them in order in a list. And the order that they are in the list is the order that they get sent um, audio buffers. So the first one right. gets your initial audio buffer, which you might be playing a track. You might be um, playing a metronome, something like that. But the first mm -hmm. guy doesn't record. He just, basically sends this out or doesn't record right. yet second guy in line or the first guy in line after the leader hears that immediately it starts recording them and it and then they start recording and sending their buffers up to the server and so then whenever there's new buffers for anybody and the next guy in line he goes up and he hears a mix of those two right. and he starts playing or singing along with that and his buffer goes up there, and it, and so it goes. So basically, everybody in the chain hears only the people that were behind them in the chain, right? But they hear so, them in time. Yeah, and then you and you're doing the correction effectively. Yeah, and I'm doing the so correction. So when I think about the structure of a band, like you put the drum track, the the drummer plays first by himself. Then you add or the herself. bass player. Yes, right. 
And so the bass player hears the drum track mm. and and is playing against the drum track. Yeah. Then you can put in a, a, a rhythm guitar player who mm -hmm. hears the bass and the drums. Yep. And then you put in the lead guitar player who hears rhythm, bass, and drums. Yep. And then you add in a singer. Exactly. Who's off time. Exactly. And so then after the last person records their stuff, it goes back to the leader. So however many seconds later, the leader is going to hear the entire mix. Right. And that gets saved as a WAV file. Everybody's WAV files get individually saved so you can do a multi-track recording. And um, that, yeah, so that's that's the idea. And it's interesting. You, the trade-off is not everybody gets to hear everybody, but the benefit no. is everybody's in time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and there's a composite strength to that too. But, right. You know, the, it depends on the piece. But can you imagine idea, taking buddy. video with that, right? Yeah. So now the videos would be in sync as well. And so you could take a, a final video and stream it somewhere. So right. it's live almost. <laughs> but the experience of the musician is going to be different than the experience of the of the audience. But that's true anyway. That's right. So yeah. But it's still you could. It is a way to do a live stream. Yeah. Composite set. So everything is working with the buffers and all of that right now. The only thing I'm working on is timing. Right. And and that you know is is what I need people to test for. So like an idiot, I put out on Facebook and Twitter. Hey, anybody want to test? And all these musicians are like, I can play bass, I can play drums, I can play this, I can play that. It's like, no, I just want you to say the alphabet with me and make sure it's in time. You know, I want to test it. And you know, I want to get yeah. But it's 10. also useful to have people who know how to keep time. Well, yeah, but that's going to come later. Like every yeah. and and people are like, where can I use it? I want to buy this right now. Like everybody's going nuts about this thing because they want to use it. The symphony, he wants to use it. Can yeah. you imagine 46 people in the chain? Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of internet that has to work reliably. So my buffers, <laughs> yeah, my buffers are set at 18K each because I found that's a good number. Right. But also, you know, that might change if I find out that, you know, it's not working well for, but, and it doesn't, it's something that can be modified because basically everything gets, all the data gets dumped into a big memory stream anyway, and then yeah. it gets pulled out as needed. But, but yeah, and you could be, everybody could be several seconds behind the next person. So it doesn't the matter. Buffers are enough to keep it great. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really as matter. As long as the buffers are big enough to, to deal with the jitter. Right. Exactly. And I also found that just to mix two buffers, well, yeah, to mix two buffers together takes about 0.8 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. So it's really scalable. Yeah. Who cares? Awesome. I can lose 10 milliseconds putting yeah, together yeah. a whole bunch of buffers. No problem. As long as you can offset it, right? Yep. Like that's the whole thing is you can absorb it. You could, you could lose a thousand milliseconds. I could. If you can absorb it. Yep. Just give yourself room. So anyway, that's sort of like my better no framework, my, you know, whatever. But I thought it was, this geek out was a good time to tell people about that. Now I don't have a URL. You can't test it yet. I've got yeah. plenty of people that I can test with, but you and I just did a test before we started, right? And sure. It kind of, kind of worked. It's absolutely worked. I totally got what you were doing the moment you played it back. Like, yeah. okay. Yeah, I get it. You were just a little behind, but, you know, that's where I am right now in the debugging process, just tweaking, yeah. tweaking the time. Yeah, and I wonder if you, you won't have to have, you know, per-channel offsets, too. Well, yeah, I do have per-channel offsets. Yeah. I yeah. Can, but I can control those as the leader. You can't. Right. 
All right. Well, anyway. I'm not qualified. Yeah, you're not qualified. You're a musician. <laughs> I'm a musician. <laughs> hey, what's the difference between a musician and a mutual fund? <laughs> what's the difference? One matures and earns money. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, before we get started, um, I, I found this thing on the internet and I said, this is a good way to start a geek out. It has nothing to do with what you're going to talk about, but you do have a way of being able to sniff out BS and, and this thing is about smart dots and we're going to make this the, the, the plop.me thing, like, so if you go to 1720.plop.me, that brings you to getsmartdots.io and then there's a blog and it's experts have finally discovered a safe, reliable way to support us from phone radiation. And I think what they mean there is protect us from phone radiation. So first of all, this whole thing about you hold your cell phone up to your ear, it's frying your brain. Yes or no? What's the story there? No. Start with the simple rule. There's 4 billion smartphones in circulation. If your brains are being fried, that's a lot of brains. And you don't see that. In other words, more people would have uh, brain radiation, cancer, tumors, or whatever it causes than have COVID-19. Oh, easily. Easily. There's way more phones. Yeah. Everybody right? has like, a phone. It's just, come on. This is one of the most, this is the most popular technological device on the planet. Yeah. Right, like it, 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 if if there was a problem, it would be massive, and there is problems without a doubt. Yeah. Right, phone, you know, smartphone recycling is a huge problem. Sure. The amount of waste they generate because there's so many of them. So they show this thermographic image of the head with no exposure yeah. to harmful cell phone radiation, and then one after a 15 minute phone call. Is that just heat? What is that? Yeah, it's just uh, heat I from the phone. If this is a real picture, and who knows whether it is or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, couldn't I create exactly that same image just putting my hand on my face? Right. I mean. Right? Uh, and it, yeah. irrespective of radiation, and we can talk about radiation, you know, in general, ho- phones are hot. Phones are hot. If and you also put a if hot you take thing a l- beside your face for a while, it's going to get hot. And also, if you take a look, the face has the red on it, not the brain. Like the head, well, the skull. That, yeah. Has none none of it, so. Well, it, it, that's hair, and hair is remarkably heat reflective, right? Yeah. And that's sort of the point, as opposed to skin. Now, they, I mean, this is all such a good, this is a pseudoscience site. And the whole time I look at this site, it's popping up. So-and-so has bought this product, and it's always somebody near me. It's always like Victoria, you know, not that far from Vancouver. It's like right. they're doing everything they can to let you know, oh, no, people you know are buying this like crazy. Yeah, so, so essentially what it is is it's, a, a little device that you stick to your phone. So obviously they're selling something. They're smelling, selling yeah. these things called smart dots. It's a sticker you put on your phone <laughs> and it supposedly wow. uh, blocks harmful EMF radiation that will give you cancer. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, the EMF conversation has gone on for a long, long time. Right. And there's not, without a doubt, we are more steeped in EMF, in electromagnetic radiation than ever before. Understand, of course, the sun emits EMF. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of need that. Yeah. Uh, we have electric light. Electric light is EMF. Your your computer, your monitor. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All, all of these things do, right? right. Now, s- smartphones specifically, and because the there is just enough grain of truth in this, Right, which is how all good lies work, right? Like, right. if you really want to deceive people, you just have a couple of elements in there. Right. Does the FCC t- test 
emissions from smartphones? Yes, they do. Yeah. Are there rules? Yes, there are. Mm. And if you violate those rules, you're not allowed to sell your phone. That's what being licensed by the FCC means. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Now, smartphones work in the microwave frequency range because that's where cell phones work. Right. Right? But they also are operating at incredibly low power levels. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it, yes, microwaves are dangerous. That's why your, your, your microwave is built the way it is. Right. It keeps the, the high energy radiation inside, inside the, the, the box, right? right. Your, your, your microwave is running a thousand to fifteen hundred watts. Yeah. Where your phone is running at microwatts. And admittedly, yeah. it's closer to your head. Although, who the heck puts their phone up to their head? Well, there's Who that, makes calls anymore. There's that. Right? Like it's <laughs> there is that. Most people use the speaker, and I use the speaker whenever I can, yeah. just because I'm, you know, I don't want to have a hot ear anyway. But right. but here's the thing: like, if it was a problem, you would see a serious uptick in, you know, the the what they're purporting is the you yeah. know the, the problem, which is, you know, brain tumors and that kind of thing, cancers and stuff. You would see yeah. a massive uptick in brain cancer um, as the usage of cell phones goes up. So is yeah. there any truth to that? Is there any correlation no. there? Well, and especially when you talk about penetrating into, new, in, into more rural regions, yeah. right? As smartphones swept across Central Africa, mm. shouldn't we have seen an uptick in illness? Yeah. No, and we didn't, yeah. right? Like, that's not what happened. Right. Right, and and they use their phones more than we do, right? Like, they've never had the copper telephone infrastructure. They've only had cell right. phones. And so we all know from the rules of logic that if there's no correlation, there's no causation. There's less chance of causation. And then top off a... Uh, Dot is somehow going to change this. <laughs> a sticker, right? Richard. A sticker. It's a sticker. Right. It's just a sticker that says, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Look, show the sticker to your friend. Uh, uh, we should have a regular let's debunk this product oh, section. Oh, my God. That'd be I mean, funny. and the funny part is, guys, it says the smart dot would ret- retune the EMF radiation. If that was true, your phone would not work. <laughs> Yeah, right. You would know it, you know, there's a great way to prove this. You want to protect yourself from radiation? Put your phone in the toilet. <laughs> right? Or you put it in a Faraday cage. That will, and, and by the way, there was a product like on along this line. You want to protect yourself from radiation? The, the, you get this box, you put it over your router, it'll save you, right? It was a Faraday cage. Was it protective radiation? You bet. So what was the big complaint? Lead, right? Was it- My Wi-Fi doesn't work anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is a Faraday cage made with lead? No, no. A Faraday, a Faraday cage is any uh, any metal that will interfere with it with the electromagnetic oh, frequencies, okay. right? Uh, micro, the Microsoft's Red West offices, you know the offices they used to do all of the NDA displays and stuff? Yeah. They were Faraday cages. As you walk through that second set of doors, all the phones stop working. <laughs> That's funny. Right? You can build buildings this way, right? It's not it's not that big of a deal, yeah. but it's the joke. Right. right? That like, yeah. Now there's a lot more radiation around. There's also like a lot more food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the are there consequences? Sure. It's complicated. Yeah. But uh and there there are definitely people that are having more environmental issues, mm-hmm. without a doubt. But the, is it electromagnetic radiation? Almost certainly not. Yeah. Uh, I'm far more concerned with like the emissions of plastic inside of of houses, mm. right? The air quality in, inside of your home is a challenge, yeah, right? All of the outgassing and so forth. You know that new car smell? Turns out it's not that good it's for you. It's not good for you. 
<laughs> but, you know, that's actually a measurable chemical emission mm. as opposed to this stuff. Well, okay, before we get started with the real topics that are on your mind today, Richard, let's take this pause for a very important message. You know, there are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them. And some of you may have even used a VPN before, but I like to do research on my sponsors. And I can only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second is speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for two years now, and my internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from others is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy, even Mama Franklin can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash dot net. That's expressvpn.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash dot net. So, you've been thinking about some of these things that have, uh, well... Some new information has come to light in power and uh, some things that you want to talk about in terms of the epidemic and what's on your mind, my friend? Well, you know, I've been dreading doing a geek out during the, because you have to talk about the epidemic. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about a topic that is steeped in lore, but also that's evolved. At the When it was an academic exercise in December last year, mm -hmm. I started reading papers as I normally do, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I'm on academic ed you and and uh science direct and like a lot of different subscription services and i read a lot of papers and so right. i made a point of reading the covid papers as china the initial publications from china because mm. they were interesting uh i was able to keep up until march in march there was like 30 or 40 maybe 50 papers published that's when it really in April it was like 2000 that's when it really exploded yeah and well it, and it, when every scientist with any credence in this space started paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so the, the volume of information coming from the science base just became insane. Mm -hmm. So I kept a lot of notes, mm -hmm. uh, mostly for myself. And, it, it, you know, it came to appreciate, I mean, I, I helped at HD Box. We worked with um, the World Health Organization during the Ebola crisis in 2014. Mm -hmm. And in uh, Cote d'Ivory and and uh, in the Western Africa, mm. and that was the time for me that really clarified the difference between epidemiology and sort of virology, 
you know, the difference between treating the epidemic ver- and dealing with the epidemic versus dealing with disease yeah. and treatment. Yeah. Because they're two totally, totally different jobs, different. right? Yep. Epidemiology Protects is a statistical science. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the illness is, right? Epidemiology focuses on uh, how quickly it spreads, you know, where it spreads, how it to, spreads. And, and, and how you keep track of those things. Right. So the actual, uh, the, the actual spreading mechanisms vary. It doesn't matter, right? Ultimately, that's the nice thing about the statistics is the bottom line is this person has it and gave it to these people. Mm. The vector they use to give it to them is secondary to the point. Mm. It's, you know, what is the R0? Like, mm-hmm. uh, if the, if just one person has it, however they have it and however that's manifest, mm-hmm. how is it given to, uh, uh, how many others do they give it to on average? And then you also talk about things like K values, which are sort of the standard deviation. Right. And so the fact, you know, the, the, the first sort of sign that COVID-19 was going to be a thing was the initial R0 values coming out of China, mm-hmm. the 2.6, which is astonishing mm-hmm. because it's very, you know, it's an odd number. Typically, the, your typical illnesses that are around all the times, your common colds and your flus are below two. They're 1.4, 1.5. Just to revisit then, R, this is the statistical significance, right? Well, th- th- this the, is the, the 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 number of people that you're going to give it to on average, which is a dangerous thing all by itself, okay. right? The, to be looking at averages, but fundamentally, what R zero it says at two point six is on average somebody infected this is going to give it to two point six people, okay, and that point six person is going to have a bad day. I was thinking right? of but the significance of the, of a K. Uh, okay, that's K. Yeah, K, well, and K is more like your deviation, which is the real problem with COVID-19 is that the vast majority of people who get it, give it to no one. Yeah. The few that do give it to someone, give it to a lot of people, mm. right? The so-called super spreaders, uh, because it had unusual behaviors and still does, right? It's a, it's an odd thing. I found an odd trend among people that I know, uh, and that I read. And, you know, the people who are expressing their opinions about uh, the virus and, and what it should do, I found that the people who were younger and more able to recover if they were infected were more for herd immunity. In other words, let's just go give it to everyone. And, uh, you know, very quickly, uh, yeah, there'll be some deaths, but most, you know, it's going to make us all immune to it quicker. Right. And, and just not understanding this, this is the problem with large numbers, right? You don't know, you can't grapple with what a million people dying actually means. Well, that's right? it. This I mean, Joseph Stalin. This is line. why I'm saying, you know, people tend to, um, prescribe for everybody else what is best for them. So it, it's yeah. the classic, like, libertarian argument of we don't need the government to build roads and schools and stuff. I don't have any children. Right. You know, like the libertarian without children has no interest in paying for schools. And so, for example, I'm just saying that I love libertarians. I ate one yesterday. Um, but (laughs) it's all in the sauce. Yeah. It's all in the sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the, the people who were for herd immunity and thinking that this, these lockdowns were, were, you know, terrible, terrible things and we shouldn't be doing this. Typically, we're those who are young and healthy, not thinking that, you know, when we don't do lockdowns, we're exposing our grandparents and our elderly and our sick, you know, and if those people don't exist in your bubble, you're naturally going to be um, offended well, and by lockdowns. 
And just because you're elderly doesn't mean you're going to die of this. And just because you're young doesn't mean you aren't. Yeah, it's true. Either, right? It's just the, the statistics. You know, the, the, it was an, it's an unusual coronavirus. And yeah. there, you know, this sort of gets to the next point, which is in these early days, once we recognized that it was a coronavirus that was involved, we took down the coronavirus playbook. Right. Right. We didn't understand this particular one. So we went with, well, what's the normal thing that happens with coronaviruses? And that's where you saw things like, Fomite contamination, right? They, that you, you cough, you smear it on a surface, somebody else touches that surface and they, and then they touch their face, their eyes or their nose or their mouth and they get it. Yeah. And it turns out that's, um, that's a normal thing. It's not really a- applicable to the, to the, to this to particular this virus, but we didn't learn that till substantially later. Right. But again, when you, you, you know, you start with epidemiology, which is a statistical science mm. that says we have something that's propagating unusually quickly. Right. This is a deal. Mm-hmm. Then you do the analysis enough to go, oh, it looks like it's a coronavirus. Mm. Now you take what you know about coronaviruses like fomite contamination and you do that playbook mm-hmm. for a while. And that's why everybody was, you know, putting the stuff on their hands. Wash your hands, clean your, 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 your shopping. Take your shoes so off forth, outside. Right? Like yeah. all that stuff. You know, somebody coughs on you, get inside, strip down, uh, walk, you know, take a shower immediately. Like this is, these are all fomite issues. Right. So, so why doesn't it, it apply to um, SARS two? We're not sure. Still, right? The, the, and why is this coronavirus so different? So as we've learned more about this particular coronavirus, we've learned it, it does have some un, it has some normal behaviors, mm-hmm. like it binds to the ACEs two receptor. Mm-hmm. Right? The ACEs two receptor is a very common receptor, generally in peristaltic tissues, so tissues that care about blood pressure. Yeah. Right. So that is your. Uh, your circulatory system, your digestive system, and your Pulmonary respiratory system—they yeah. all have ACEs two receptors everywhere. Yeah, in previous severe infection like SARS of coronaviruses, generally they were only ever found in deep lung tissue. Right, non-severe coronaviruses tend to be upper respiratory infections. Right, your nose, so back, you, your throat, you, kind of thing. Back, back your throat, top of your lungs, mm. and then, you know, what made SARS and MERS, the two other similar variants that were more severe and quite, quite a bit more, sorry, what's that? SARS-1. This is SARS-2. Yeah. SARS-1 and MERS, which is the Middle Eastern respiratory system. They're all, though, all, both of those are, are coronaviruses. Yeah. Far more fatal than this one. Yeah. Far more, right? 20, but 30% not as fatality contagious, rates. right? Because they only showed, but they, what they were, were deep lung yeah. infections. So they tended to only bind to ACEs2 receptors deeper in the lungs. And the lungs are actually a place that are very difficult for your immune system to work in. Hmm. Your immune system works best in the circulatory system, yeah. right? Where it has, uh, it's very wet, it's, you know, 100% humid hmm. and at very stable temperatures. Hmm. That's where your, your white blood cells travel best, function best and so right. forth. The, the lungs, relatively speaking, your body are kind of dry, cold places hmm. for your body. Hmm. So it's harder for your, uh, your immune system to work there. Same with your nose. Like generally speaking, there's a bunch of rhinoviruses and things hanging out in your nose all the time. Sure. You breathe them in regularly. Right. As soon as they come inside your body, your body kills them. Mm. Your nose is where they, they loiter. And it's when your immune system is down, right? That old, you stayed up all night, you get a cold the next day, or, you know, you got yourself chilled. Like those are real effects in there because you already have the, the disease hanging out in your body. Yeah. It just hasn't been able to get a, a foothold until you knock your immune system down right. a bit. So, uh, all of these more severe coronaviruses had this aspect of being deeper in the lungs mm-hmm. and difficult to fight. Mm-hmm. 
but they were lethal enough that they tended not to spread. And, and deep lung infections, you are only spreading the disease once you are clearly have it because yeah. you're coughing. Right. Right. This is the thing about SARS too. This COVID-19 coronavirus is that, yeah. uh, it, it, we don't, we won't maybe get symptoms until it could be three or four days or even five days yeah. after we've been infected. So there's a period where you're infectious, but not symptomatic. And you don't, and so you feel like you're not going to give it to anybody. So you're not going to wear well, You didn't mask know you had it. Yeah. Right. So they, the, and, and therein lies the trouble. Somehow this particular mutation of this RNA strand mm. has allowed us to have upper infections. So in the throat, mm -hmm. functioning, reproducing virus, so that you're excellent. Uh, you know, the droplets that you breathe out, uh, actually, are infectious and yet it doesn't seem to be fomite contaminating and so is it because of the size of the different. droplets are very small it looks like the droplets are an issue because normally normally because coronavirus has a lipid envelope viruses are odd right i mean viruses are starting to Viruses are not alive. They're not. You cannot kill this. They're, it isn't alive. But they're either active right? or inactive, right? But you wouldn't call them alive. Well, they, yeah, they have a they have a mechanism for reproduction that involves hijacking cells. Yeah. And typically in coronaviruses, the reason they have that name, that crown name, mm. is that they are a lipid envelope, a sphere, coated in crowns, in little spikes. Right. These spikes interact with the ACEs2 receptor in your cells. And when that interaction happens, the cell pulls the the lipid envelope inside of itself, mm. at which point it breaks apart, connects with the genetic material of the cell, and turns the cell into a machine for making more coronavirus, right? right? This is the normal mechanism. Coronaviruses generally all work the same way. Yeah. This spike, so the, the, what we learned over time was that this mutation did a couple of things. Uh, one was it was far better at interacting with more ACEs2 receptors. So we're seeing intestinal variants of this mm. disease and circulatory system variants of the disease. It's where you're seeing things like the black toes and micro strokes and all of these weird reactions that coronaviruses wouldn't normally do, that the virus is spreading in deeper into the body in different ways. Different people get it in different really ways. Really interesting. And we don't really understand why. Also, this uh, one but, of the symptoms that I had, because I did have uh yeah. COVID-19 you've been through it yeah I I for that week where I was symptomatic uh I completely lost my sense of taste and smell I could only taste salt and I tried a whole bunch of flavors and smells and couldn't smell anything and I could only taste salt so uh, even today I can still tell that my sense of taste is muted I don't know how right. much I'm estimating it's about 80 percent of what it normally is but um, so, and I wonder if that isn't just that the virus infected that the, your your taste senses mm. and damaged those cells, yeah. and it's going to take possibly years for them it to could, grow back. It could, yeah, you know, uh, and that. But it also speaks to how effective this particular variant is in attacking cells. Yeah. That it's far more effective than most, right? Uh, and but and in exchange for. Uh, it isn't a good fomite contaminator, mm -hmm. but it does seem to be able to survive in the air longer than most. So it, its lipid envelope is fragile in the sense that as soon as it touches the surface, it's probably non-viable. Right. But is able to survive longer in the air because it can aerosolize. Yeah. And that's right? where it turns in from, from droplets to very, very fine mists 
that because they're right. so light, it takes them longer to fall to the ground. So they hang around more. And now if you're constantly breathing them out. But epidemiology tells us it's not a true aerosol because true aerosols, there are zeros often are double digits mm. like rubella, German measles, which is a dry virus. So that's a virus that does not have a lipid envelope, has an R0 in like, at like 14. Mm. Measles was so contagious that somebody who had measles walking through a room meant that anybody walking through that room for the next half an hour was likely to get measles. Yeah. Not coughing, not singing, not talking, just walk through the just room. Just breathing. Yeah. Right. That was enough that that it, that was enough emission wow. because those are those dry viruses are true aerosols. Mm. So we didn't think we, we resisted calling it an aerosol for a good reason. Mm. The R0 was too low. Mm -hmm. And yet it seemed to have some aerosol behaviors. The biggest one being that in spaces where people you we're doing activities that emitted more of the virus, it spread much further. Mm. And the famous one, I believe it was patient 34. So this was a woman in Korea who got the disease very early on and went to church. Yes. Yes, I remember talking about this. And sang for two hours. Right. And not only infected thousands, thousands of people, people by extension. Right. Yes. But she, the, the important part from the statistical science perspective was there was a group of people that were singing with her that got it. That's expected. Yeah. What wasn't expected was that the next congregation that came in after she left hours later mm. also got mm. so that the singing emitted so much of this and it sustained in the air long yeah. enough that it actually contaminated people hours later. that never saw her. Wow. Right. And again, this is where epidemiology comes into play that the contact tracing process that the, the South Koreans went through allowed them to figure out, oh, these people were in the church but in a totally mm -hmm. different time. And that informs then the biology that says, you know, how could this be possible that somebody could get it sometime later? And, and you get into this, maybe the reason the R0 is as high as you have these super spreader events mm -hmm. is that you have these issues. And they, the religious angle is a really dangerous, oh, difficult yeah. issue here. Because they, because religions have a history of being suppressed, like they have a suppression reaction. And people want to worship together. Right. But you understand that, like, singing is probably the best way to spread sure. this. And how do you go to church and not sing? Like, it's kind of counterintuitive. There's been and, some... And what's worse, telling people to close their churches or telling them what they should do in their churches? Yeah. There were some you know? really tragic uh, results from uh, pastors who, who ignored the advice and, you know, opened up the churches and, and, and then the pastor died uh and some of the congregation died yeah. it's just tragic it 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 will kill but it is our understanding of how this thing functions that is gradually evolved now and i and i'd be remiss if i didn't just talk about the fact that like there are other epidemics mm. this one is all consuming for a reason right they the the fact that socialization creates risk yeah is really great at plugging it. Like the AIDS epidemic has been going on for 40 years. It's still an epidemic. Mm -hmm. People still die of AIDS on a routine basis. Right. Uh, the, the difference there is that its method of spreading is something we can control more easily. Right. Uh, some, you know, wear a condom, right? right? Like the, those things work. Uh, but I, and here in, in British Columbia, uh, where we're doing a pretty good job of managing COVID-19, more people are dying of 
uh, opioid addiction yeah. and, and opioid overdosing. You know, yep. that's an epidemic that's going on all over the West right now. And it's and, everywhere. Uh, and it needs to be dealt with as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, uh, the couple from the Purdue, uh, family is, uh, has admitted responsibility for that. Yeah. For their part. Hopefully, in it. you know, the fact that it was intentional is doubly disturbing. It's very Where disturbing. At least this, and it, in, I'm hoping we've sucked some of the racism out of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the early days where this was a Chinese virus that came from a right. wet market in Wuhan. Right, right. Like a lot of that. Sleeping with debunked. their chickens. All yeah. that crap. Well, and let's face it, with, you know, zoonotic disease is a thing. No two ways about mm-hmm. it. We call it swine flu and avian flu for a reason. Like the bottom line is that viruses and bacteria pass between humans and animals on a routine right. basis. And bats being the only flying mammal. Um, they, there's a reason we blame bats early on because bats cause a lot of them. They get in They everywhere. have a very exotic immune system. Yeah. It's hard to be a flying mammal. And right. so the way their, uh, the way their circulatory systems work, the, the way that their metabolism works and the way their immune system work is very odd. Hmm. And so, uh, without a doubt, it probably came, it came from bats it wasn't somebody eating a bat. Like right, that's, yeah. that's a lie. Yeah. It's a silly lie at that. It's more <laughs> likely thing is that somebody went into a bat cave and got, and got contaminated with the precursor that mutated in them. And then they went to the wet market and China has a wet market. It's just a farmer's market. The, the difference is that it is far more common in China to buy live food because they don't have the quality control systems for butchering right. that we have in the West. Right. And so it's safer to buy your food live and butcher it yourself right. than it is to trust that somebody has butchered it correctly. Right. And they, and, and without that, that's a, that's a system that can be improved. I heard uh, something recently about, um, in tropical climates, you have vampire bat problems because they live on human blood and they've, they're very good at figuring out when people are asleep. And they've learned how to, you know, find out when people are sleeping the deepest and, you know, sort of creep into the to the bedroom and uh, make a very small incision and without waking the person. And then they just like lap up the blood. And uh, well, yeah, because normally vampire bats go after cattle. Yeah. A cattle tend to be outside. Well, that's true. But there, there right. has been this problem. <laughs> lately of disease and rabies in particular spreading among people because of vampire bat bites. So yeah. I don't well, know if that's a problem in bat, China, you know, but it's certainly a tropical no, issue. I, yeah. They're, they're relatively rare. Yeah. And, and uh, it is unusual. I mean, we have a problem with bats with rabies, even here in British Columbia. And these are mouse sized bats. And yeah, you you know, one of the reasons you get your, your dog vaccinated against rabies is that because certain wildlife, raccoons and bats especially, carry yeah. and uh, and it'll kill your dog. Uh, but yeah, the the it's an odd it's an odd piece of the science. It is interesting, you know. We know so much about COVID nineteen because of advancements in genetic technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think we aren't even thinking about this now, but the reality is the va- almost every swab ever taken of someone to do that test also went into a genetic data bank. Yeah. 
I did a show on the run side with Lynn Langett talking about the genomic scale analysis that's going mm. on, the, the, the petabytes of data that's flowing around the world around fighting this coronavirus. It is trivial for us now to map the RNA genetic details of every person getting infected with this virus. Mm. And so because it mutates routinely, it's, we are able to actually tra trace lineages. We can tell the difference between a Chinese lineage and an Italian lineage and, and a Persian lineage. Like we know where these viruses come from and how they, they spread because they're routinely changing. I'm perfectly okay with people understanding and having my genome uh, sequence because I'm hopeful that, you know, someday I'm going to get a call and say, Hey, we uh, found because of your gene genetic makeup that uh, you are, you know, a flying saucer is going to land in your house right now or whatever. Or you're yeah. going to have some, that seems some catastrophic I, thing. I mean, without a doubt, <laughs> you know, your personal genetic information should still have privacy wrapped around it. I agree. I agree. I don't want anybody cloning me. Yeah. But the, well, and more relevantly, discriminating against you because of your genetic right, material. Right, sure. Right. Which, you know, is, is what you get into. Uh, RNA is somewhat simpler. The mm -hmm. fact that we're, you know, it still costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time to analyze a human genome, mm -hmm. but a virus genome, pretty, pretty simple. simple. And, but it all, but it's, it, you know, we've never been better equipped to deal with a pandemic than we are today. Yeah. Today, the, not the, at the beginning of it. Yeah. Though. Well, and even at the beginning, we were still, we were mapping this from the very beginning. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about like the Moderna mRNA vaccine. Mm -hmm. They were, they took, they got original samples from China in December. They made a series of prototype antigen vaccines over the course of December. Wait, December so when last they settled year? On, last year. 2019 or 2020? In 2019. Okay. They were already developing that mRNA. The one they settled on after making several hundred uh, versions in January of 2020 is the one going into people's arms today. Mm. So they correctly made that vaccine in a matter of weeks. Wow. It took the better part of a year to complete the testing yeah. on it. But fundamentally, by the middle of January 2020, we had a viable vaccine. That is pretty awesome. That's genetic technology and a very different kind of vaccine. Mm. Because normal vaccines were live virus vaccines. Like virtually every vaccine you've ever seen up until now, going all the way back to the first ones for smallpox, we're taking the virus itself, crippling it in some way, so it's not as dangerous, mm. reproducing that at scale, and then sticking it in people's bodies. Their bodies then fight off the crippled vaccine. That gives them education to be able to fight off the actual virus. mRNA is not that. So then what makes an mRNA vaccine different? So with an mRNA vaccine, I am not giving you a crippled version of the virus. What I am is giving you the antigen. So when your body learns to fight off a virus, what it's actually learning is how to produce an antigen that disables the virus. Okay. Now, the majority of antigens that we've seen against COVID-19 are spike inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So this is an antigen that binds to the spikes on the coronavirus so that it cannot connect right. with cells, right? Sure. There are other antigen options, right? Nothing's ever simple. Mm -hmm. But this is the most obvious one is somehow they bind to the to the spike. And I say somehow because there's several different ways to bind. Okay. There's not only one way to fight this thing. But by binding to the spikes, they disable its ability to propagate. And so it naturally dies off. Sort of like breaking so the thorns off of a, of a vine. Yeah, you break the thorns off, it's not going to stick you. 
This is more like sticking Play-Doh around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not pointy anymore. (laughs) That's better enough. You're plugging. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What an mRNA vaccine is, is giving you a mechanism that produces that antigen. So we're skipping a step. We're not making your body fight off a crippled vaccine Mm. and figure out the antigen itself. We're just giving you the cancer. Okay. Right? And that's one of the reasons it was produced so quickly, but it's also one of the reasons that it's safe. Mm. One of the reasons that the testing process for vaccines takes so long is that you're you're balancing between so crippled that it's not an effective teacher of the antigen and not crippled enough and gives you the disease. Mm. And so the testing for vaccines has always been very lengthy and challenging because different people have different immune systems, different ages. Most of the testing that's been done on these modern vaccines for COVID-19 have been only been done on central parts of the population, mm. 18 to, to, to 80. Don't, they haven't tested pregnant mm. women. So there's big concerns about pregnant women. They haven't tested on mm-hmm. children because their immune systems tend to be different and the consequences of testing are more dramatic. So they're very careful in that form. But you understand we only have one testing set of testing protocols for vaccines, even though we have a dozen different ways to make a vaccine, Mm. including mRNA. Mm. And you have to consider the idea that after the initial testing was done of the mRNA uh, vaccine, if we'd simply put it into production, we could have been injecting people in May. Yeah. Like we could be much further ahead. There's a, now I understand this was the first mRNA vaccine to ever go into mm-hmm. production that we're still learning about it to some degree that nobody really mm-hmm. knows, you know, what happens in 20 years, but the architecture of the mRNA vaccine is such that it's just antigens. It can't really do that much to you. And so the Pfizer vaccine is the same kind of vaccine. It's an mRNA, yes. but it's different. Though. Also an mRNA. It's different. They've made their own version yeah. of it. The Oxford vaccine, which is not, we're, we're recording this at the end of December. It's not in production yet, but it's the closest traditional vaccine. Okay. So the University of Oxford folks actually are the, pretty much the only folks that have developed a coronavirus vaccine mm-hmm. at scale before. They developed the MERS vaccine. Yeah. So the Middle Eastern respiratory disease is a version of SARS. It's very lethal. And it's mostly in the Middle East, Northern mm-hmm. Africa, spreading slightly into Central Asia as well. And so that is the group that actually developed this vaccine. And that's one of the reasons they're in the running is that their COVID-19 vaccine is a modification of the MERS vaccine. They have all the processes in place and so forth. But that is a traditional vaccine. Okay. In the sense that it is a weakened version of the virus. Yeah. But we are in an interesting time in humanity that our ability to analyze genetic information and our deeper understanding of the immune system, largely caused by these other epidemics. The AIDS epidemic had taught us more about our immune system than just about anything else. The money we spent to try and understand AIDS taught us a lot about our immune system in great detail. A lot of cancer researchers now, we've come to appreciate that viruses are involved in cancers, right. depending on the cancer, of course. Uh, the human pamphloa virus, for example, which is a, the, the root cause of cervical cancer, mm. is ultimately fighting a virus. And our development of that vaccine for HPV has helped educate how to fight COVID-19. So we've learned a lot as a civilization uh, over the years that have all been applied to dealing with this pandemic. And it's one of the reasons the response has been so rapid. Yeah. Normally, vaccines take years and years to develop. And that was one of the fears around this 
pandemic was that it was going to take a long time to get this done. I think it was the most optimistic of people that said we'd have a vaccine in 2020. Yeah. Fauci didn't he would say that. Because he's educated. Yeah. He's knowledgeable. He's he knows how hard this is. He's done it before. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, the uneducated, the, the you know, your Dunning-Kruger folks were like, ah, no problem. We'll knock this out. You know, we are currently there's a, a big discussion going on about a more virulent version of COVID-19 spreading. Well, there's one out, uh, out of the UK. In fact, that first that strain has just been detected in Colorado. Great. And it's in Canada yeah. as well and so forth. Now, the question is, how is it detected? Because we, mm. we have a science fiction mind, right? We've seen too many movies. <laughs> you know somebody's thinking, oh, right? they stuck it in the machine. The machine said, new virulent <laughs> strain detected, right? That's not what happened. Right. What happened was boring. What happened was statistics mm. that in the southern part of the UK, as Samples were being taken of people having the illness. They now have a statistical model that shows on average for a given RNA variant, because they mutate routinely, you're going to see this many, many more additional cases, mm. right? And what they saw was many more cases that were too similar, mm. right? So in the end, it was a statistical model that showed there must be a more virulent strain that this particular set of RNA variants of the COVID-19 uh, virus coming in this area appear to be more virulent because there's too many of right. them. Right. It's not any more precise than that. Yeah. Well, uh, I know we have a lot more to talk about, so we should take a little break, I think. And uh, we'll come right back after this message. You know, since the pandemic, most of us are cooking and eating at home. We don't frequent restaurants like we used to, but we do have to shop for food, which can put us at risk. One solution is to subscribe to a meal kit delivery service like Every Plate. You might think it's more expensive to have fresh ingredients shipped to your door, but every plate dinners are cheaper than takeout and way cheaper than delivery. In fact, one every plate meal costs about the same as a latte. We're talking fresh ingredients, meats, vegetables, herbs, spices, everything you need to cook a delicious meal with no wasted food in about 30 minutes. That's less time than it takes to shop and cook, to call for takeout, or have a pizza delivered. That's why I subscribe to Every Plate. And now you can get three weeks of Every Plate meals delivered to your door for just $2.99 a meal. That's three weeks of meals for $2.99 per meal. Go to everyplate.com and enter the code .NET3. That's everyplate.com and enter the code D-O-T-N-E-T-3. All right, Richard. Uh, I I don't want to spend the whole geek out on the on the uh, epidemic. No, I'm ready to move on. I mean, I'm optimistic for the future. I like I'm, I you know we've certainly been looking at the changes that have happened to our society mm. in this past year, and, and it's interesting to see how many of them were just accelerant. Mm -hmm. That the pandemic was an accelerant. Mm -hmm. We were headed this way anyway. Like you're sort of moved to the cloud and work from home. Uh, and now we've just done more of it. And how many of our sort of temporary practices that will subside, like doing Christmas over Zoom oh, uh, when when the pandemic is under control? It was hard this year. It was said No family, tough year, no and kids. I'm looking forward to next year being a little different. Yeah. But both my daughters moved out this year. Yay! It's the most wonderful time. Yeah. Although I have to I'm wonder, after the, the longest stretch I've ever been home in like 30 years – May have been a correlation. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're here all the time. I think I'm going to go somewhere else. 
<laughs> it was the outgassing, perhaps. I don't know. Something um, like that. I don't know. What's the latest in terms of energy? I've uh, had seen. I've, I've seen a lot of stuff on the internet in the last year or so, where people are yes. saying that solar energy is now so cheap and so effective that we can power the world with it. You know, and uh, the, the, people have been very bullish on solar energy this year. So what changed? Uh, you know, uh, I got the data. F- you know, we did the uh, the. W- power production worldwide a couple of years Mm. ago. So I pulled some of those same data sources. Just to be clear, solar as of the end of 2019 was almost at 3% of the world's power. Yeah. So still not a lot. That's a big jump from 1% just a couple, three years before. 300% up. Yeah. yeah. The curve is, is dramatic and without a doubt, it's, it's pretty good. Solar still has the same problem. Uh, The price fall is astonishing. You know, back when Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House, it was roughly $75 per watt for solar mm. cells. Today, the sort of going rate out of China is 13 cents a watt. So that is is cheap. And that means also that solar panels- that's how much it costs to put in solar panels that generate that much wattage. Is that what right. you mean? So, so it's like if I want- 10 kilowatts, mm. 10,000 watts, I should be expecting to spend $1,300. As opposed to $7,500? Yeah, as opposed to $750,000. $750,000. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's, we've come down a long way, man. Or seven point, it might even $7.5 million. I have, I have math. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially on the fly. Right? But it's just, when you talk about a, a tha- you know, a 10,000 fold decrease in price, yeah. right? It's huge. And the efficiency of solar panels continues to go up. Mm. So, you know, the, er- the original solar panels were in the 1960s were about 10% efficient. Today, the off the shelf solar panels that you can buy run about 22, 23% efficient. Wow. So more than doubled in, in about 60 years. Mm. Uh, and the, the theoretical limit for w- w- single substrate, like ma- silicon based, is about 30%. Mm. You'll never hit it, but you know, that's in the end, that's the, what it'll absorb. But we're starting to use other materials. Um, and, uh, perovskite is probably the most interesting of perovskite. these. Perovskite. So these are, per- perovskite is a kind of mineral. Uh, the main thing that it allows for is absorbing additional spectra. Okay. So, uh, well, it's still not perovskite cells are starting to come on the market now. They have cost; they're more expensive. They have durability problems, so we're, we can count on twenty-five to thirty years out of silicon substrate mm-hmm. solar panels. We're not confident with perovskites at lasting that long, uh, but we're already seeing numbers ab- above twenty-three, like twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven percent. Wow. There's lab experiments that are in the middle thirties. But must remember lab experiments are lab experiments, sure. but you know, it starts in the lab, can eventually end up in the field. Sure. Um, some great conversations about combining, uh, perovskite and silicon together again to absorb more spectrum. Right. There, there's also different designs. There's multi-junction designs. Uh, there was a lab experiment showing over 40% with a multi-junction design. So these are, they're, they're promising numbers. It'd be, it's interesting to think in terms of, your power, your, the value of solar is it's a non-consumable uh, power system. Right. So, you don't have a consumable year over year. Right. You have your capital expenditure to put them in. 
they require some maintenance, but you're not feeding it coal. You're not feeding it uranium. Like you're not feeding it anything. It just just makes power as long as it's maintained. So that is inevitably going to win once you get the manufacturing prices down. Your levelized costs over its lifespan Mm. are, are dramatic. And so that's not going away. But is any one power source going to provide power for this planet? No. no. It's just not feasible. And that's not what's happening. You know, solar is not even in, is I think, third place of the renewables. Like, first place is still hydro. Yeah. Hydro by a long way. But number two is wind. Yeah. You know, wind is, uh, by the end of 2019, wind was like 6% of world's power generation. So, double what but solar And there's been doing. a lot more wind lately. You can tell that's for well, sure. Well, there's been because plenty of the wind. But there's also big commitments to wind. Mm. So, in the in the UK, the Dogger Bank wind farm is now is under construction right now. It's going to be the largest wind farm ever built mm. uh, so far. It's using some of the largest turbines mm. uh, ever mm. made. The water, the Dogger Bank is the Dogger Land was this chunk of land that originally connected the UK to Europe during the Ice Age. So the water is relatively shallow; it's less than sixty meters deep, and so it, the construction methodologies are pretty straightforward. But when Dogger Bank is completed in the next few years, that'll be 5% of the UK's power. Wow. Like, those are big That's numbers. That's a big number. You know, the, 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 I was reading a great study about, about wind power, uh, especially offshore wind right. power. Like, onshore, it's got its issues, sure. right? There's noise issues. Uh, um, Birds. There's sightline issues. Offshore, you can build them bigger. But it, and it's always concerned about birds. Yep. There was an interesting experiment going on where they, they changed the color of one blade. Mm. So instead of three white blades, you have two white blades and a black mm-hmm. blade. And apparently bird strike levels drop wow. way down. That's great. I uh, love that they, kind the, of research. It's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Uh, downside shorten the lifespan of the of the turbine because of sunlight. Oh, sure. The the dark blade takes more damage. Yeah, that's right. You don't it's, think you know, of those things, trade-off. right? Hmm. Yeah. Here's a surprising one. It, and it, it's obvious as soon as I say it to you. When you build an offshore uh, wind farm, you restrict access to that area. Yes. Turbines are dangerous. Yep. There are lots of undersea cables running yep. around. They've turned into uh, ocean oases. Sea life grows massively in the area because nobody's fishing it. Ah, uh, interesting. So, water quality is higher under these solar mm. farms because the, the mussels and other bivalves filter, they grow there rapidly and they filter the water. And the fish come on. It, all of the structures that are put on, uh, on subsurface to support become reefs. Wow. And because they're restricted from fishing, they become nurseries for wow. fish. So, it's been a, an interesting benefit, uh, uh, these offshore uh, sites, sure. that they create restriction areas that actually help support the ocean long term. Hmm. Uh, here's a downside. The huge burst of construction in wind power in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Are now coming to an end. They, those devices are, are wearing out. Mm. They twenty to thirty mm-hmm. year lifespans, and so that's about the right time. We're having a, a m- massive recycling problem. Yeah. Most of a wind turbine can be recycled. All of the electrical, mm-hmm. all of the copper, all of that, the, the, the those components, even the tower. But it's great. the moving parts, it's the, the blades. blades. Yeah, the blades are the yeah. problem. The effort to make the blades as large and as light as possible has meant making them from materials that are very resistant to recycling. Oh, you want to make sure. a blade that lasts 30 years, you make it out of a high-density epoxy uh, fiberglass. It's tough to deal yeah. with. And so, 
And they're huge, right? I mean, most of these, especially in the big ones, like they're larger than wingspan of 747 and they're hard to- What about carbon fiber? Won't that last forever? Carbon fiber does work, last forever, but it's more recyclable. It is. But carbon fiber in the 90s was relatively rare. There's more fiberglass coming uh. out and it's very hard to recycle and it's expensive to recycle. So, it was one of the things that's happening is we're building in the cost now of wind turbines that you need to recycle these blades and that's changing the blade design. Mm-hmm. So going forward, we're getting more recyclable blades. And then, you know, mm-hmm. one of the problems you have with the fiberglass blades is, yeah, you can recycle them with pyrolysis, but it's a tremendous amount of energy. Sure. Right. So great. You got to run a coal power plant to clean up after a wind power, yeah, power that's plant. That's crazy. Silly. Right. <laughs> but that's the issues that we're coming <laughs> with now. But it also speaks to a maturation of the industry. Yeah, sure does. Right. That we are now getting into significant at scale full life cycles from was built, used its entire lifespan, and cleaned up. So, it speaks to wind continuing to grow. So, I'm following a trajectory here when we talk about wind turbines and solar. And, you know, what I learned from talking to you about this stuff is that this is energy that has to either be used immediately or stored or cached. And so, batteries become really uh, necessary as a storage or a cache for – for that it's energy. One of the approaches. Yeah, one of the approaches. But whatever happened to our old pal graphene? Do you remember graphene? Still it was like the yeah, wonder material still there, buddy. for a while. Yeah. But you remember the, the, the truth, right? Which is whenever a science group puts out a thing about their technology, mm. it's because they're looking for money. Mm. And uh, not that they have a product that they want to continue developing yeah. a product. And that's what we've seen with graphene. It's literally lots of noise came as newer, less expensive ways to produce graphene came along, which absolutely happened a few years ago. There was an urge for to get more money into the research because now it's going to be easier to make more stuff with graphene. Yeah. And that cycle's ongoing, right? We are developing products. Well, one of the things that uh, graphene promised was ultra long life batteries, Right ridiculously yeah. long life. So I saw it, it was one of these things I saw in a Facebook feed that there was a, you know, the big massive charger battery powered chargers that we get these 50,000 milliamps per milliamp hour, hour yeah. things, right? Well, there was one that used graphene. And, and yep. I said, okay, well, I'm going to buy that. Turns out that's the worst one ever. I mean, it doesn't take long <laughs> to charge, but it'll charge a phone to 85%, 90%. And then the last 10% takes forever. Yeah. And I don't know why. Well, we remember when we d- did our battery show, one of the things I talked about was the fact that lithium ion batteries don't have good signals for when they're close to fully charged. Mm-hmm. And so smart chargers trickle charge that last 10%. Mm. So it might just have been bad firmware. Maybe. But, you know, you we're better off not fully charging lithium-ion batteries. And, in fact, that's what you're seeing companies like Tesla do with their cars where it's like you run it at 80 85% most of the time because the battery life is so much longer if you don't fully charge. Interesting. Um, but it makes me wonder if we shouldn't just start lying to people with these batteries <laughs> and, and just – Keeping additional 10% aside that you don't tell you about and and say it's 100% when it's at 80%. Well, your phone would have to tell you that, right? Well, it, you know, and phones are so competitive for their battery right. life that it's a, it's a bigger issue. And battery technology continues to advance. Tesla had a big announcement this year yeah. over their new batteries. And I, I want to get into electric cars almost as its own topic. We're in power. Okay. Battery storage clearly is scaled up. I mean, 
Tesla has been successful in in Australia with grid size po- uh, power, although still a relatively small grid. Yeah, uh, there's definitely some challenges. The lithium's not a challenge. Like we have lots of lithium, we keep finding mm-hmm. more lithium. The bigger issue that's definitely come to light this past year are the other materials like cobalt, right. which not only are very toxic, but tend to be taken from places that are uh, very poor mm-hmm. and have very exploitive working practices. Mm-hmm. The DRC being a major source of cobalt, the Democratic Republic of the mm-hmm. Congo, which is neither Democratic nor Republic. Yeah. Uh, but he's big on child labor, especially something as toxic as doing cobalt and extraction. Diamonds. diamonds come from there too. Yeah. Well, that's a different area, but I'm with yeah. you. The the issue, uh, the but it's like these big successful companies in the West cannot be party to exploitation right. of of right. children and and the destruction of those those parts of the world. Mm. So moving away from cobalt, finding more sustainable sources of cobalt, finding better ways to make batteries, all of that is enhancing, yeah. and and their battery densities continue to grow. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about nuclear. Yeah, because like for so, example. Nuclear fusion, the ITER project. Yeah. I, I had forgotten all about it. And then I read something about, you know, ITER and what it was. So what's the latest with that? That this is that big fusion so, reactor that they've been working on. For- yeah. So this is a fusion reactor that was first proposed in 2006 yeah. and uh, now isn't expected to actually start testing until 2025 with a first full power run in 2030. So, you know, you want, to, you want to take a long time doing something. Government's a way to do it. Uh, the current estimate is it'll be $65 billion all up. Where are they actually at? The building is built. They're beginning to assemble the cryostat. So, What's the outer the, the outer container, in order to run those superconductive magnets to hold that plasma in, you have to cool them with liquid helium. And unfortunately, Eider's technology is still old enough that they're going to do liquid helium style uh, superconductive coils, just uh, like the Large Hadron Collider. There is new, you know, that's because they started in 2006. That's when they got their design completed. Today, you would use Rebco with liquid nitrogen, but that would mean a complete revising of the project. And goodness, how long, how long that would take. Hmm. So the first real field coil components and the cryostat components started to arrive. And from countries like South Korea, the base of the cryostat was actually built by India. Hmm. You know, it's cool. This is an international project, but it's also one of the reasons it's taking so long and costing so much. Right. There are eight toroidal field coils to be built. They're all supposed to be absolutely identical. They're being built by eight different countries. Right. Again. International cooperation is good, but not if you want something done quickly. So, yes, they're beginning assembly and are, quote, on track for first flame, like first plasma in 2025. In their first what do you test. think? You think it's going to fly? It'll be late. No, I mean, do you it think it'll will. ever work? Oh, it'll run. Without a doubt, it'll run. It'll, will it be net power yeah, will positive? Net, will it be net power positive? They believe it will be. We'll see it when it happens. It hasn't worked so yeah. far. We've yet to be net power positive. Yeah. Uh, and they're already talking about the, they, that this one will be a test case. It's got no power extraction mechanism that they want to start planning the next international fusion project called DEMO, which would be an actual demonstration power plant. Wow. Which, you know, begs the question, why are you still building items? And there was a bunch of them that were sort of taking money and nobody, they didn't really have any plans. I think what, what was it? Uh, 
McDonnell Douglas had one that they were. Oh, and it was Lock oh, Lockheed Martin. You know, after we finished that fusion uh, power mm. series, right, where we, we did the, the government mission projects like yeah. Hyder and NIF. And then we did the tech billionaire projects like General mm. Fusion and, and, and those guys. And then we did a cold. Fusion That's one, right. which I got a lot of flack for, but it was, uh, you know, we're going to get a lot of flack for this one too. So uh, I, uh, you perhaps. can't just say things uh, so without right getting after flack. That, yeah. Lockheed Martin came out with another announcement around their compact fusion reactor. Okay. The one they said, you know, was only five years yeah. away. Well, that was six right. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Is it still five years away? Um, still five years away. <laughs> uh, Although they updated a bunch of plans. Mm. Uh, and one of the th- you know, their original claim to fame was that not just that they could build a fusion reactor that was net power positive, which nobody's right. done, uh, but that they could build one that would fit on the back of a tractor trailer, right? That it'd be truck right. size. It would be, they called it the, it was the compact reactor. That was the whole claim to fame that we could get, we'll get you a hundred megawatts of yeah. power on a design that'll fit on the back of a truck. So last time I saw plan updates for this was a new paper from them. It was a couple of years ago. And uh, they had changed the specs a little bit. One is they'd gone up to 200 megawatts from 100 megawatts. <laughs> but they'd gone from about 40 tons, so it fit on the back of a truck, to 2,000 oh. tons. So, not so portable anymore. No. <laughs> now, the, the one innovation that was in that reactor design was this field. It was a pinch field coil design. It was clever. And they were talking about using Rebco superconductors and i'll refer you back to the superconductor geek out from two years ago rebco is a rare earth superconductive uh coil it's not metal it's actually kind of ceramic it's tricky to Mm -hmm. work with but not only do they run at higher temperatures meaning only chilled by liquid Mm -hmm. nitrogen but that the superconductors also have much stronger fields so their beta pinch is much more powerful there's something there but again the only reason you talk is because you don't have money yeah and uh, so, you know, presumably they're going to get money. The other n- nuclear angle I wanted to get into was small modular reactors had some progress. So, these are the ones that will fit on the side of your house, right? Well, not quite that. Fit on a container truck. Okay. So, same, you know, just like the compact fusion reactor, which looks to be science right. fiction. This are fission reactors, but small enough that they will fit on a yeah. truck. But more importantly, can be manufactured in a factory. Because fission reactors up until now, when you talk about the full-size reactors that are still being built, like there's a, there's a group being built in Georgia right now, wildly over right. budget. Each one of them is bespoke. They're unique. They, they're, they're built in the terrain that they're in. Uh, they have to be inspected for safety and they're in. You have to design new safety protocols for every mm-hmm. one of them. I mean, it's why it's so difficult to build these reactors. They're always over budget. They're always way over time. And so, you know, compare that to a, a, a natural gas power plant that you can crank them out dime a dozen reliably. Yeah. And part of that is the vast majority of a natural gas power plant built in a factory right. and assembled at a site. So, the whole point of the small modular reactor is like, let's follow the same process. But the other thing that happens when you scale a reactor down, and I'm let's talk specifically about new scale, uh, because there's a few different small modular reactor designs, but new scale is the ones who got their permitting process finished this year. So these, when you size down to about 60 megawatts, this is like the reactors that the Navy uses mm. that run in, uh, in aircraft carriers and submarines. When they're that small, they, A, they don't need 
rapid refueling. Like typically they can be run continuously for 10 to 20 years before they need mm -hmm. refueling. And in a new scale model, you would never refuel on site. What you'd actually do is take the entire reactor assembly, remember it fits on a truck, right. and take it away, yeah. right? So and in the, what new scale's proposal is, is that you build a power plant that actually holds a dozen of these modular reactors. So that, you, you know, you have up, up to 720 megawatts worth of power, but you probably run it around three to 400 so that you can have a few out of service. It's all underground. What you actually do is you build a big swimming pool. Now, <laughs> admittedly, it's a it's big a swimming big pool, pool, right? Yeah, we're talking 50 million mm -hmm. liters, but enough room to put 12 of these in a common pool of water so that they're passively well, safe, walk away safe. And you never, you're running most of them. But you always have one going out of service, going into service, you know, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Not that there's anything to do on them. You simply take them out and take them back to the factory for reprocessing. Yeah. The big issue that we've seen with every power plant that has ever had a problem, whether you talk about uh, Fukushima or you talk about Three Mile Island or so forth, is the cooling system. Right. And the, the real issue is that when you scale fission reactors up to that 300 megawatt class, they... It's hard to yeah. cool them. Once Even when you shut down the reaction, there's so much ambient heat still in mm. the system that you have to keep cooling running for a long yeah. time. And the basic claim to claim with small modular reactors is that you drop the rods. In the case of the new scale design, it's actually the electricity coming from the plant that holds the rods out of the huh. core. As soon as you lose power, those rods drop by mm. gravity and, and, and scram the core, basically stop the reaction mm. going on. At that point it will passively lose heat into the water and it will be cold enough to move in 30 days. Wow. So it still takes time to cool down. But less time. But that, but it's passive time. You don't have to okay. do anything. At the end of 30 days, you can take it out and do, and do your, get it replaced. So New Scale submitted paperwork to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in 2016. Okay. And when I say submitted paperwork, I mean 12,000 pages. Wow. Uh, and in August of 2020, they got their final safety report that basically said, you're allowed to build mm. now. Now, that four years wasn't them just reading it, although 12,000 mm. pages. It was making changes, going back and forth. And so, they signed off with revisions in August of 2020. And, so, and the revisions meant that New Scale, who had gotten 36 public utilities in the U.S. to wow. sign on, which is not a small achievement, right? Yeah. That they, they, they actually had a lot of utilities saying, Hey, we want this mostly, um, remote regions, mm -hmm. places like mm -hmm. Idaho, uh, where they want a small power plant. And they, and the idea that you can install this plant, do minimal amount of maintenance, runs for roughly 20 years, and then you're just changing out cores from there. Like it's pretty compelling yeah. solution. Yeah. But with the sign off came the new assessment. Mm -hmm. It, there, it was going to be more complicated than plain, planned. And so they had originally uh, talked about being able to get the first plants up running by 2025. And it's 2020, mm -hmm. man. Like, they, you know, we've got our sign off. In five years, we can have you a plant. Now they've bumped it up to 2030 uh, and also bumped uh, up the price a third. Wow. So it was going to be a $4 billion plant, now a $6 billion plant. And as a result, a bunch of public utilities have canceled. Wow. Uh, whether they'll get a, a plant built or not is a hard question. We are still talking 10 years from now. 
uh, nine. You know, I I looked back at our first geek out on nuclear power. It was num- show number eight hundred and thirty four in January of twenty thirteen. That's how yeah. long we've been talking about this. But if I recall that show, the hotness was thorium salt reactors. And we were very, very excited about thorium salt reactors. Can you refresh us and tell us where thorium is today? So, understand we're conjuncting at least two different technologies. Thorium versus uranium. Although, in order to use thorium, you actually breed it into uranium-233. Don't anybody fool you. Although, uranium-233, very different from uranium-235 and and other isotopes. Um, But the more important part is the molten salt part. So the interesting thing about molten salts is that the reactor design doesn't use water as the primary coolant uh, or, or the moderator. In light water reactors, the water in the primary containment vessel is both the moderator. It slows the neutrons down. Like graphite does in a regular it, uranium reactor, right? No, no, graphite is what's used in the, in the thorium reactor, in the molten oh, okay. salt reactor. Right. Normally in a light water reactor, you're in a steel vessel and the water is the moderator. But the water is also the, the working fluid. It's the thing you heat up. And because water freezes at zero degrees and boils at a hundred degrees Celsius, I'm using, you know, professional (laughs) measurements here, not the, you can't see what I'm doing to Richard right now, but it involves my middle fingers. (laughs) Yes. That's why we pressurize our water reactors, because 100 degrees Celsius is not hot enough to run turbines well. You actually have to put it under pressure to get the more energy into the water. And that's what makes one of the things that makes those reactors dangerous is that you can have a steam explosion. Right. Uranium salts are solids. They turn liquid at 400 degrees centigrade. They don't boil until 1500 degrees centigrade. Mm. So, the liquid working temperature is massive. It's 800 degrees that you can work with. So, A, it's a lot of heat. But the bigger thing here is that the fuel won't travel very far if you take it out of containment. First off, your containment vessel isn't pressurized. It's at one atmosphere. There's no reason for pressure. So, it doesn't have that energy, uh, explosive energy available to it. And if it leaves its containment vessel and drops below 400 degrees, it turns Mm -hmm. to a solid. It just Mm -hmm. stops. Right. And so in the Oak Ridge experiments, which the original experiments in the 60s and 70s for this design of reactor, they would shut the reactor down routinely by simply draining the fluid into a a metallic vessel set in concrete because it needs graphite around it to actually reflect the neutrons well enough to keep it running. And then it would cool down on its own passively when you and it wouldn't even damage the fuel to do that they would reheat it with electric heaters and then pump it back up into the so i'm getting i'm remembering now and why we were so excited about molten salt reactors and thorium and wondering have any thorium molten salt reactors been made and if not why not there we just you just went through a u.s election you remember the uh the democratic candidate andrew yang yes he was the, yeah, he was the basic income yeah, yeah. guy. He was also advocating for thorium yeah. reactors. He wanted this, he, his, one of his commitments was to spend 50 billion developing the reactor. The United States has not put a lot of energy into thorium mm. and molten salt reactors, but the Chinese and the Indians okay. have. And so they're continuing to advance. Uh, although the, uh, the U.S. also stepped in on the Gates reactor. So Bill Gates was putting money into China to develop, uh, one of the traveling wave reactors. In traveling the US wave reactors. The shutdown of that. So Gates's reactor design 
Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Bill Gates fund. designed? He's, no, no, oh, he, he didn't design it. Fund he, the he, but I'm calling the Bill Gates design because he's okay. financing it. But his is an even more elaborate design. It's particularly about consuming uh, used fuels. Okay. Which is which very I, important, I think actually. a general... We need it a place is. to store that uh, stuff. The United States has stopped repro- hasn't reprocessed nuclear fuel since the 70s. That's why you have all those reactor cores sitting in pools around all your, your right. reactors. Uh, the the French continue to reprocess mm-hmm. fuel uh, and, and make most of their power uh, from light water mm-hmm. reactors. Molten salt system in general, because it's a fluid, it lends itself to continuous fuel reprocessing. So as opposed to the solid reactors where you actually have to shut them down, let them mm-hmm. cool, dismantle them, shuffle your fuel rods around, and in theory you take your fuel rods off for chemical reprocessing – Molten salt reactor design allows for continuous fuel reprocessing. And there's a bunch of techniques that are mm. available there. And so one of the byproducts of getting a good molten salt reactor fuel loop working is that you could consume nuclear waste right. with it, especially the high aconite waste. So those old cores that are no longer reliable to be used in light water reactors stored could in be reprocessed. Mountain in Montana somewhere or wherever well, they're they, stored. They've never actually done that. They don't do it. They're sitting in Swimming pools around the reactors. Yeah. It's worse than yeah. you think. Yikes. Right? Each core fuel assembly, which is about 50 tons, runs for about a year and then is stored in these, tank, in these tanks virtually indefinitely. But it, it also lends to this idea, and we talked about this in the original Thorium show, was you should be, you could be building molten salt mm. reactors right beside the existing light rotary yeah. plants. They already have yeah. the turbines. They already have the right. power grid. And they have all this fuel sitting right. around that could be reprocessed into molten salt fuel, burned up, and and largely destroy the majority of the radioactives in the process. That's the problem. What do we do with all this nuclear waste? So, because if that stuff escapes into the atmosphere, eesh. Well, it, it doesn't because it's heavy. All right. All right. And unless you have an yeah, explosion. Yeah. But... The it does last mm. a long time. The best thing to do with it is burn it up and make it right. into electricity until it's not radioactive yeah. anymore. And that's certainly an option with mature molten salt technologies. So China so, and India, uh, the United States is China and India for for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is they don't have indigenous reactor programs, mm. uh, light mm-hmm. water programs. The Indians bought uh, Canadian heavy water reactors, mm. and uh, the, the the Chinese have some Russian reactors. So the fact that they have to develop their own reactor design anyway means why wouldn't we go after these new concepts? And so that's why they're doing it. And also, uh, they both have huge supplies of thorium, and they don't have huge supplies uh. of uranium. So thorium is much more plentiful mm. than than uranium, yeah. and uranium is only in certain locations. Most of those being largely West mm. friendly, Australia, Canada, even the United mm. States. I mean, they have large caches of uranium uh, that they're extracting mm. and and running plants with. Thorium, we also have thorium, but because we have uranium, we've been using it because we know how. There's a a lot more thorium around. And again, the thorium fuel cycle breeds thorium into uranium and then burns it up. So, it'll continue. That's very, so we're still bullish on thorium and uh, just. Well, bullish on molten salt. You know, again, uncoupling these things. You can run molten salt reactors on uranium and you should, right? I would argue the more important thing to do is mature the molten salt reactor design. Because it's better fuel yeah. consumption, because it has a better fuel reprocessing cycle, and because it's inherently mm. safer, right? Uh, we developed the light water reactors for a simple reason. It made plutonium, and we wanted to yeah. make bombs. Right. 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 
That's why that system won over molten salt at the time. When you remember. The, when the decision needed to be made in the 60s about Nixon, what reactor right? to mature, uh, it was Nixon who called the ball yep. on that. And it was, we knew more about how to build the light water reactor. We had more confidence. It was a more mature mm-hmm. model. And we knew how to reprocess the fuel to get plutonium out of it. So, it was a cost-effective way to make yeah. plutonium. Right? There, there are other decision factors, and you can question them, but it's not as big a conspiracy as we'd all hope it would be, but it is what it is. Cool. So, what else is on your mind, my friend? It's about an hour and a half. Uh, uh, we had a great year in space. Yeah, we're an hour and a half. We had a great year in space. We had a great year in space. Like, it's it's hard to get your head around how good a year in space was. Uh, mostly Elon Musk's fault. Uh, Elon he tore it tore up. it up. two ways about it, right? Yeah. Tore it up. That's the uh, only way. Uh, you know... He's now the single largest operator of satellites in the world. He has 900 satellites for his Starlink constellation. Right. Before Starlink, there were only 2,000 operating satellites And in tell orbit. me what Starlink so, does again. So, Starlink is uh, space-based broadband. Okay. So, it's just an internet service, right? Uh, I mean, he's promising huge performance, but that performance hasn't come along yet. It's, it's, it's like 20, 30 megabit. Uh, uh, internet. But it's complete coverage but everywhere in the world, right? It isn't yet. He's only got 900 satellites up. Oh. So, in Canada, we can get it on okay. the beta program. But his ultimate goal is 42,000 satellites. He says he can completely cover the world in like gigabit e- e- internet. Now, that's a little bit of space junk problem, isn't it? Well, one of the things he's doing is he's using a lower orbit. Yeah. So, his satellites don't last. They re-enter regularly. So, it's not a space shuttle problem in the sense that you're not going to have non-functioning satellites that are And can obstacles. we do the math they, so we know they, that they land in the ocean rather than in a city? Well, they're actually so small they'll oh, burn, burn up. up. Oh, okay. right? there's, there's nothing that will survive. Okay. They're, they're only a, a couple hundred kilo, now, kilograms I, I, each, I do so. remember hearing complaints from astronomers that yes. the these things are blocking... Uh, exposures. They're yeah, they're blocking exposures and and blowing out the exposures of uh, of photos that they're trying yeah. to do. You you see the photographs. It's like you're trying to photograph a star, and there's this big yep. white streak across yep. your because they have to leave the shutter so open he's for a long enough time. Yeah, long time. Yeah, and so he has worked on reducing the reflectivity of the mm-hmm. satellites, and that seems to have seems to have helped. But spray paint. It's, it's going to be an Splash issue. Spray paint. <laughs> basically you know there's a, there's stuff like vanity and black like there's all kinds of interesting things but it, it is a question of when there's that many satellites up there's no chance of you not having one fly through your, right. your view and irrespective of how reflective it is like will it block stuff? right i mean the uh, the ultimate solution then is to put all your 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 telescopes in orbit above yeah. or put your telescopes on his satellites how about that? that that's go. a win-win for that Elon. <laughs> totally. Uh, but if we talk about the single biggest thing, like why did we start this Geek Out series, buddy? Why? Because you had uh, a story that you told me about the space shuttle and I said, you know, right. y- you have to record this stuff. You yeah, have to. to. And it was, the, it, it was in 2011 when Atlantis landed for the yeah. last time. The last space shuttle flight was in yeah. 2011. And that was the last time that Americans flew a manned spacecraft into space for American mm. soil until mm. this year, right? Elon Musk flew two crew dragons, the test one and the first production, the first production flight to the space yeah. station this year. So the reason for the geek outs kind of looped out this year that 
this whole manned space flight thing. Uh, Elon did it. And he, and he did it, you know, in nine years. 2011, SpaceX was just forming. It was just at the yeah. beginning. You know, the Orion spacecraft, the one that's supposed to go yeah. to the moon? Well, that's been in design longer than SpaceX has existed. And it hasn't, it hasn't had a production flight yet. And he's built a manned vehicle that flies to the space station. And it's almost boring. Did you watch that flight? Uh, yeah, it's I did. Like, it was kind of it boring. Went. It was like, it it's was, just a, yeah, bus. a bus in space. And, it, and when we're recording this right now, there are two Dragon capsules at the space station. There is the new autonomous cargo Dragon mm. arrived and docked itself yeah. as well. So there's the crew Dragon for for crew one uh, that mm-hmm. flew up there. That's uh, four of them. And then there's also a cargo Dragon mm. up there right now. So I mean he's he's yeah. done it with with Falcon Nine, and that's not the <laughs> craziest thing. Right, like the the crazy thing is Starlink yeah. is Starship. Yeah, the Starship. So did you I did watch, watch that. I watched it explode, but it looked like a freaking UFO. Man, it was. It did miracles. It tell, did magic. tell everybody like, about the Starship if they weren't paying attention. So Elon's goal is to make a hundred percent reusable right. spacecraft. Now, Elon keeps telling you that he wants to build cities on Mars, mm-hmm. and that's awesome. Whatever gets, you know, whatever right, gets you whatever going. Motivates, yeah. There's a whole lot of problems with that, but he's uh, dealing with the most intractable problem, which is routine, a- routine low-cost access right. to space, which you need 100% reusable spacecraft for that. Which the shuttle was supposed to be. Yes, that was the but point it was a of the shuttle, and an awful lot of the complexity of the shuttle was redundant systems like an airliner. It just wasn't even close. To being reusable, you know, yeah. It, it ended up being a rebuildable yeah. spacecraft. The heat management system wasn't good enough. Like they, and the more importantly, they only ever did one update to the shuttle, yeah. largely. You know, they, you think about how many iterations that Elon did to the Falcon 9 over mm. its life to the current version that's flying to right. the space station. So much in improvement. And what he's doing is what NASA did in the 1960s. His approach is a manufacturing approach. Make a lot yeah. of them, test them autonomously, blow right. stuff up. Yeah. You learn through failure yep. rapidly. And so, I mean, SN8 is a good name. There were eight versions of Starship before this, mm-hmm. up to this one. And by the way, while we're recording this, SN9 already on the pad going wow, through testing. Great. And, and SN10 is in assembly in the high bay right now. Could be ready to fly wow. in a week, right? Like he's perfecting his manufacturing system and doing constant improvements so along cool. the way. So, so Starship's goal is 100% reusable spacecraft, and he does it with a with a two stage spacecraft. The first stage is a gigantic booster, like the first stage booster of the mm-hmm. Falcon 9, but much, yeah. much bigger. But it, the basic profile is the same. Get it up to about 60 kilometers and, and 2,500 kilometers an hour, and then separate, fly back to base, and yeah. land, which we know he can yep. do, which is why he's not even worried right. about that part. It's the upper stage that's right. the hard part, because the upper stage has to fly the rest of the way to yep. orbit. Do something useful into mm-hmm. orbit. And then come back. Then re-enter and land. With people in it. Right? Well, eventually. But don't even worry about the people part. Think about it in terms of cargo. Right. Like, he's expecting to be able to lift 100 tons in a 100% reusable wow. spacecraft. That's crazy. I guarantee you the very first utilization mission of a Starship will be for Starlink. Yeah. Okay, he can lift 60 Starlink satellites on a Falcon mm-hmm. 9. Right? And you want to put up 42,000 satellites, mm. right? Hey, do like, the, do math, the math yeah. there. That's 700 yeah. flights, right? But if you can list 100 tons, well, 
that's like 375 of those uh, satellites in one go. So now you're talking like 100 right. flights, 120 right. flights to lift them all. Still yeah. a lot, but way more sure. practical being able to lift 100 tons. So the... A, he's building them out of stainless steel because let's just do a little Buck <laughs> Rogers, right? Let's just layer it on there. But the reason he switched to stainless steel from carbon fiber is because the stainless responds well to the cryogenic okay. temperatures. Uh, it gets very, it's very sturdy when it's yeah. cold and it responds well to the heat. So he needs a lot less heat shielding because the, st- the stainless yeah. can take it. It's just an, it's just complicated mm-hmm. to work with, right? To be able to do all the things. So, SN8 was the first time to test a bunch of stuff at once. So, the Raptor engines, the methane engines, have been fairly well developed. I think they still got some problems, but they're working mm-hmm. those things out. Uh, and they had done flying grain silo, silo tests. I mean, that's the thing about Starship. It's happened so quickly. At the beginning of 2020, he, ba- he did a couple of hops with essentially a tank with mm-hmm. an engine on the bottom. Right, these early right. SN tests, and they could call them the flying grain solos. They really had a weight on the top of it, just a big tank, but it would take off, go up a hundred meters, fly over two hundred meters, right. land. Very Still cool, cool but yeah. party trick. Star the the Starship SN eight mission was a whole lot more stuff mm-hmm. working, and that include so they a they flew to uh, twelve and a half kilometers, so about forty thousand wow. feet. They used three engines and then belly flopped, flipped, you know, instead of having, generally speaking in rocketry, the rules are pretty simple. Pointy end up, flamey end down. Okay. But Starship went, yeah, it's a good rule. If the flamey end is not down, something is wrong, right? Get the flamey end up and the pointy end Yes, down. don't get the flamey end up. Flamey end up down, down in a right? hurry. Pointy end up, flamey end down. Uh, but that's not what he did. He did something nuts. He got it up to 12 and a half kilometers. Then he belly flopped. He turned it, the rocket onto yeah. its side. It then with, and shut the yeah. engines down. And then it began yeah. to fall. Now it has four fins on it and it, it used those fins to make a stable yeah. fall. It didn't have a lot of lift to really go very far, but they didn't need to. That's not what it was for. Right. The bottom line was that he had a controlled descent mm-hmm. towards a landing pad, different from the point where he took off. Right. And then at the right moment, fired two of the engines and flipped the pointy end back yeah. up again. So back to the right, you know, and aimed right at the landing pad and to, la- to land back on the pad. You just let gravity take it down a certain amount and then you kick in the boosters and yes. turn it up. And that's how you'd make 100% reusable is it to allow this to re-enter the atmosphere, slow down with atmosphere yeah. drag. Fly towards its site, or really fall, fall with, with style <laughs> towards its site, and then fire that engine at the last moment and land on its tail. Yeah, and of course it did. And yes, it, did. it exploded. It, it exploded, but well, it was a. F- it did. It did it a was lot. A happy right. explosion. It was like you know he's doing the, it again. It, it was an explosion on the yeah. pad. It blew up, but it blew yeah. up in the right place. It, it got back to where it was supposed yeah. to be going. So what worked? It is. It wasn't fully fueled because it's too heavy to fly even fully fueled. They ran, apparently the three engines they ran, they ran at minimum yeah. power, not maximum yeah. power because they had too much right. power. Uh, they, sh- and they, he didn't publish this flight profile in advance at all. 
So nobody knew what the hell was going on. We're watching mm. this thing live. And as it's going up with three engines running, suddenly one of the engines yeah. turned off. And really, and it recovered its balance. You got to imagine yeah, like right. you're balanced on three points of thrust. You turn off one of the points of thrust and then you catch yourself and keep going up with two. It was amazing. That is, it, it was that pretty. That but it looked like the engine failed. So we're like, oh my God, the engine just failed, but it's still it running. It was pretty cool. And then it kept going up, going up, going up. And what was happening is as the tank was was depleting and it was getting lighter, they couldn't throttle the engines down enough. So, they shut the one engine off and turned the other ones up a bit to keep mm. the climb going. Then they set a second engine off. So, now it's still climbing on one engine until it gets to that peak altitude. Then they shut that mm. engine off too. Now, part of what makes Starship work is that there's two sets of tanks. There's the main tanks for the ascent and there's a separate set of tanks called header tanks for the mm. landing. Okay, so when they shut off the main tanks, now they were free falling. And so, A, they got to exactly the altitude they wanted. The engines mm -hmm. ran the whole duration. They shut off properly. They recovered their balance. All of that worked. Mm -hmm. Great set of tests. Then the belly flop. The belly flop mm -hmm. worked perfectly. They maintained control, maneuvered appropriately, headed back to the landing site right on. And then the flip maneuver, the one everybody looked at went, yeah, <laughs> that's not going to work. Where they fire the engines with the thing horizontal and tip it back onto its tail. That yeah. worked perfectly. Then things went wrong. And what went wrong was that the methane tank, the methane hanger tank lost mm -hmm. pressure. It looks like it cracked, yeah. broke, something caused it to reduce pressure. And the consequence of that was that the engine suddenly went very oxygen rich. They didn't have enough fuel going in. They had a lot of oxidizer going in. And when you have a lot of liquid oxygen going into your engine at high temperature, it eats Kinda the engine. Ba boom. If you go back and watch this, now that I've told you that, you'll see there's two engines firing. The green color you see coming from the flame, that is engine parts being vaporized. Oh, oh, I thought methane burned green. Well, it, it does, but that's not okay. what was happening here. The oxygen was burning up the engine. So, you're seeing the burning up engine parts cause the green. The system then shuts off one of the engines. There's something wrong, shuts off an engine. But it doesn't shut off the second engine because it realizes I've done to one engine and it literally throttles that engine up to do everything mm. it can. It's fighting for survival yeah. as the engine is And is this all automated in, in code? Totally so 100% automated. So, nobody's sitting there going, oh, that's this is all up. software. I'm gonna... Nobody's fast yeah. enough. Right. It was all software doing that. Somebody thought all these scenarios yeah. through. And so it landed back at the pad with vigor. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually you saw it just kind of yeah, crumple. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like it, it literally and it made a thud. And Kaboom. then then there was a rapid unplanned assembly event. <laughs> a rapid unplanned disassembly event. I like that. That's right. Yeah. The rud. Uh, but and brilliantly, the nose cone of the vehicle was just sitting there yeah. in the end. And they and apparently Elon's keeping it it's as a monument, cool. you know. But in the meantime, SN9 assembled and back on the pad. They were doing pressure tests yesterday. So besides SpaceX, what else made 2020 a great year for space? Um, uh, perseverance. So, which is remember Curiosity, the big like mini sized rover on yes. Mars. So they had they built a test article as well, right? They mm -hmm. always build two, and so Curiosity was mm -hmm. the original one. Then they once you know Curiosity achieved its goals, but still running, they took the test article and refitted it with better yep. sensors, and flew it this year to Mars. It hasn't arrived yet, but it will er, mm -hmm. early next year. Uh, and so that's another you know huge rover, and this is we've got a few cool things on it. Um, the first is it has a helicopter. Yeah. 
because you got to have a helicopter. So that would be the first time we have a flying thing on another planet. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, of course, the atmosphere is much lower pressure and the gravity is much lower on Mars. So it's sized right. differently. But it should be able to do uh, – it's an electric gyrocopter, basically, and it's able to fly ahead and do, uh, you know, scouting for the rover, which is amazing. Yeah. There is a project called Moxie on board, which is a machine for extracting breathable oxygen from the Martian Whoa, atmosphere. Whoa, are you kidding? So they're testing the actual equipment to break, suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and break it down into O2. Hey, we need that here. What is, what, what's the byproduct? <laughs> what's the byproduct? Yes. But like, what is it? Uh, car Carbon, right? I mean, it's literally breaking the two apart, but it's taking use energy when we could do that here and we can, you know, if we were, if there was time to do more geek house, we could do a whole show on carbon sequestration and carbon, ex carbon extraction. Well, just, you know, now here, that I'm, now you've piqued my curiosity. And so, so this thing on that's on Mars is going to suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, split it into oxygen right. and carbon. And so right. the carbon is what happened? What is it in a powder? Powder. Really? Yeah. And so, could yeah. we do the same thing actually, here? I suspect it ends up as a calcium carbonate, like they actually bind the carbon could to something Could we do the else. same thing on Earth? I mean, we do. We do this. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that is it's what- It's photosynthesis. Uh, uh, well, no, it's, 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 uh, that's how you make uh, uh, corals, is calcium mm. carbonates, right? Like, it, it's a normal thing. We're just, we're putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than the planet can absorb. Mm. That's all. Um, and there's direct carbon sequestration, right? Like there's a company north of here, actually, funded by Gates, that literally sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, and, and But I thought it. sequestering was like that. putting it underground or whatever. It is. Or, or you can chemically react it. They actually offered to be able to chemically react it back into gasoline, if you like. So, imagine carbon neutral gasoline. It's like we took the carbon out of the atmosphere rather than taking it out of the ground, made it back into gasoline. Dude, I love talking to you. Oh, it's been too long. <laughs> I learned these things, you know? That's so cool. All right. So, back to but, Mars. But it's interesting. But that's the whole thing is like they're testing equipment for sending mm. people to Mars and validating this idea that they can make them, that they need a machine to produce oxygen rather than carry all the oxygen that the astronauts are going to need to breathe to explore Mars with them. Yeah. Right. In situ resource utilization. I have a little machine that makes the, that extracts the oxygen for us. So you can, you know, you go back to, to, to Zubrin's case mm. for Mars, which was you send the landing craft and the, and the laboratories and stuff right. in advance and they produce the fuel to fly back there. They could also produce and tank oxygen so that you have, you know, you have enough breathable air for the duration before I you I remember go. reading the Martian Chronicles in eighth grade and there was the presumption by Ray Bradbury that there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere of Mars for people to breathe, not easily, but people could, The I guess the people that were there, the Martians were, had adapted to uh, breathing that atmosphere, but, but there was a little oxygen in the atmosphere. Yeah, this, well, and it, and there isn't, and also the pressure is incredibly low, like it's just, it's low, it's, it's not enough pressure, you need a pressure suit to protect so you So, am I remembering that out. book wrong, or did was it just made up? No, no, you probably remember the book correctly. It's just that they didn't know oh, enough about okay. Mars at the time. That's all. Interesting. You know, the, the, and Mars may, you know, one of the big missions of Perseverance is to find evidence of life and they've built better and better sensors. So, 
Uh, they're deliberately landing in a lake bed because they know now that there were lakes on Mars. Yeah. And uh, so they're going specifically to the places where they're likely to find things. They're, they're a little less yeah, afraid. Yeah. Uh, that's a great mission and, and everything about it's awesome. I'm looking forward wow, to getting so results cool. from it. Uh, there's the Artemis project. So this is the initiative to get back to right. the moon. Uh, and that's using the space launch system, the SLS. And I already made fun of Orion, right? The the capsule that's supposed to go to the moon, which has been in development longer than SpaceX mm-hmm. has been around. Um, different from Starliner. Starliner and Orion look similar. They're both capsules. Um, Starliner was supposed to be the alternative to Crew okay. Dragon, uh, built by Boeing. And it's had so many problems that their first test flight is went, went so poorly they're actually going to have to fly over again. And yet the U.S. government paid three times mm. more to them to build theirs because their system was going to be safer. And yet it's deeply flawed. And you know where their flaws are mostly showing up? Mm. Software. Freaking programmers. You know, the part that Elon gets so right. <laughs> it's hard. Well, getting good programmers costs money. And if you cut corners on the software, you're going to have problems. Just yeah. ask the Starliner folks. Um and it'll be interesting to see with the new administration how uh, the Artemis project continues. Not that the existing administration funded on all, uh, all the things that Artemis needs to proceed, but they're pushing hard to get back to the moon. And uh, as a very personal note, Canada cut a deal as part of their contribution mm-hmm. to the Artemis project to have a Canadian on the mission, the first mission, Artemis 1, to wow. orbit the moon. So it, that will be the first time that a non-American has flown uh, past the Van Allen belts, wow. and it'll wow. be a Canadian. So I'm yeah, personally great. stoked about that. It'll be the first, for, you know, there's only been, what is it, uh, 20, so, 20 or so Americans to leave yeah. low Earth orbit. Now, you know, a few of them laid it to the moon. Some of them didn't. Right. Uh, but, you know, that, that, well, I will be interested to see if Artemis gets funded if it continues. Because there's, there's reason that um, I hope they will. Um, I think there's more. Go ahead. All right. Richard, have you been following this last term of the American president, the Space Force idea? And what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, it was an idea that was in development long before the current okay. administration. Or the previous administration. It was a recognition of the need to separate the needs of the Air Force from the needs of space okay. in general. Uh, that space serves all the different constituencies of the military. And so having it under the control of one of them created its own okay. set of problems. Uh, the problem is th- that it was made into a big deal rather than a logical okay. reorganization. That consolidating the efforts around space. We're not talking about needing space marines and, you know, right. uh, starship troopers and stuff. What we're talking about is that the organization operation of space-based assets needs to be consolidated in a place that focuses on supporting the military oh, as a okay. And that I, and I, and I'm comfortable saying that, saying, knowing that you remember when I did that moon base yes. stuff uh, that I ended up doing with NASA. Yes. Uh, some of those guys that I worked with or are still in regular contact with, they're in space hmm. force now. And they're still the same guys. You know, it's just, it's a reorganization so that, that budgets and focus. So it's sense. stuff that the Air Force was doing before, but it was space-based? Yeah, Air, Air Force had space command, right? And it, and it and that worked fine, but it's like it's grown into its own arm. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, its own set of skills. And so it, it kind of makes sense that that's okay. where it was going to go. Well, that makes sense. Uh, sp- speaking of reorganization, I don't know if you've been following this, but... Um, 
There's been a lot of consolidation in sort of the traditional American space markets. Okay. So the la- latest one, this is just recently, is that Aerojet Rocketdyne, which was already a consolidation of a b- bunch of different rocket mm-hmm. companies. So these were the companies that built the F1 engine for the Saturn V, yeah. the RS-25 engines for the space shuttle, like all of the big rocket en- American rocket engines were all in the company that now was rolled together in some company called Aerojet Rocketdyne. That company is now sold to Lockheed Martin. Okay. Um, what this says to me is that the new generation of space companies have impacted the market in a meaningful way. Okay. Right? I mean, even Lockheed Martin through United Launch Alliance with their new rocket Vulcan is not using an Aerojet Rocketdyne engine for that. They're using the BE-4, Blue Origins rocket engine. Hmm. So, the bottom line is that the old space guys are shrinking. Yeah. They're compressing down into a smaller and smaller entity because SpaceX, Rocket Lab, Blue Origin are eating up the market with modern technology. That they're clinging to old technology is killing them and they're shriveling as a process. Okay. So, you know, if you you just think that, that Elon is a flash in the pan, like it's an overall change in the market and the market is reflecting that. I think it's important. Okay, very good. And I don't really want to talk about American stuff too. Uh, China had a great year in space last year. Okay. In 2020. Um, they are the third nation to soft land on the moon after America and Russia, and the third nation to bring rocks back from the moon after America and Russia. I mean, America obviously did it in 69 with Apollo 11, mm-hmm. and, you know, Buzz and Neil yeah. and, and Michael Collins. Uh, the Russians, Luna. 16 in 1970 was a soft landed lander that actually re- retrieved rocks and then flew them back. And then this year in 2020, uh, with the Changi 5, the China landed a lander on the moon, picked up rocks and flew them home. So, you know, they're a player. It's, it's fascinating. At the same time, the Japanese with the Hayabusa 2 landed on a, uh, uh, touchdown on a asteroid, grabbed some rocks and flew them home. We now have asteroid rocks. Wow. Which is, I mean, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, and my last point on space, and then I want to talk a little bit about electric cars, is okay. uh, Arecibo in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, there is a there was a huge radio telescope built in the sixties called Arecibo. Okay. It's a it was a unique asset, and it had been suffering from lack of maintenance for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, and it's a it was a it's a tension. Um, Radio receivers. So it basically was in a crater in the mountains, was a, a huge metallic dish held up by a set of towers. Mm-hmm. These cables have been uh, wearing out for a long time and they hit a breaking point mm-hmm. literally this year. And the towers collapsed and the entire dish collapsed and it's destroyed. Wow. I didn't hear about that. Um, yeah, it's, it's in, in the space news. It's not, it was no long, for a long time, it was the largest radio dish in the world. Mm-hmm. There's a bigger one in China mm-hmm. now, although they're not the same. They're used for different things. Uh, right. Arecibo, I mean, you wouldn't build it today. You, you take a different approach to solving the problems that it solved, yeah. but we did literally let it rot. And, and now it's, it is destroyed. It would, it would not make sense to rebuild it. You would make something else there. There are other observatories in the Arecibo site, like the site mm-hmm. is still usable, but it's, re, you know, reason for existence is a ruin and it's a, it's a damn shame. Well, that sucks. Yeah. But, you know, that's the way things, way things go. go. So, uh, uh, one last topic. Boy, yeah, we, we got, got a long, long show, show, but this is, <laughs> what is this? Ben Hur? <laughs> this is very cool though. So electric cars, uh, Dude, was 2020 the uh, year of the electric was. car or what? 
You you have uh, you you have a, a an explosion of development of new electric cars. Well, I think the big car companies finally, you know, are come into play. Like back when SpaceX was brand new, back in 2011, was really the first pure production electric mm. car, and it was the yep. Nissan Leaf. Right, Nissan took a Versa, put battery packs in it, charged way too much for it, and uh, and that was sort of the beginning of real electric cars. Now there were electric cars before that. I mean, people talk about the EV1 by well, there was General the Motors Honda '96, the Honda whatever it was, and then yeah, Fit. No, 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 no. First, so the first how- first electric car was by Honda, and then the Toyota Prius after that. What was the Honda one? Uh, well, before that, you had the G- the EV1. That's in '96. It's older. Okay. So, the, I, I sort of sort of into three categories, right? You have these experiments mm-hmm. like the EV1, which was lease only. They made one batch of them and then they took them all back at the end of the lease and destroyed them. Great conspiracy theory around that. You have the compliance cars. There's a lot of those. So, when California put zero emission rules in place, basically told car manufacturers, you only get to sell cars in California if you make a certain number yeah. of zero emission ones. They would make these batches of electric cars to get their compliance yeah. numbers in place, but they were not good cars and they weren't meant to be good right. cars, right? They were compliance cars. But when you talk about really, you know, interesting electric cars, the Prius was a, is a hybrid, right? We had lots of different hybrids, but the Leaf oh, okay. was pure electric so we're, car. I'm talking about the Honda Insight right? that was the, it was a hybrid yeah. around the time of the, I think it was, it was hybrid, before the right? Prius. So, and those are all yeah. explorations in ways to do more efficient cars, but we pure electric. So again, it's not right. been that long, right? But we, I think we'd all agree that Tesla blew the market open with a great car, right? And I wouldn't count the Roadster. Right. The Roadster again was a toy for, for yeah, wealthy people. Yeah, just the people. original Tesla. It's, uh, it was short lived vehicle. Yeah. Uh, it was just an experiment. Uh, but the Model yeah. S, and even then the Model S was a niche car. The Model 3 is the breakout car. I mean, and the Model Y started delivery in 2020, I mean, during a pandemic. Right. So, in by last year, by 2019, Tesla was made almost 370,000 yeah. cars, right? And the, and the majority of those were Model 3s. So far this year, so up to the third quarter of 2020, because we haven't got the numbers for mm-hmm. fourth quarter yet. By th- third quarter, by the end of September, 320,000 cars wow. made by Tesla. So there could be there could be a four hundred fifty thousand by the end of the year because this this last quarter the third quarter they made one hundred and forty thousand wow. cars, but of those one hundred forty thousand one hundred twenty five thousand of them were Model Threes mm. and Model Ys. Um, the the Model S and X are are niche, so the breakout is there and the value of Tesla. I mean, Tesla is now listed on the S and P five hundred. I know it's crazy, isn't it? They're, they're a huge company like, in terms of valuation for only making, I mean, that sounds like a lot of cars. It's not a lot of cars, but the other car companies responding, that's right. the thing. Ford is going to make an electric F-150. That's crazy. The most popular vehicle in America, there's going to be an electric variant of it. An electric pickup truck. Yeah. And it's it's got a lot of potential here. I mean, Stacey actually put a deposit down on a Rivian. Wow. Because she likes her pickup truck for the coast. Now she wants an electric one. So we'll see what actually happens there. I think one of the largest things happening was Volkswagen. Okay. Um, I mean, Volkswagen is coming out of Dieselgate. Yes. And they decided to go all in on the electric car. And so what they've really done is what you should do, which is they've built an electric platform. Basically, an electric skateboard. Right? BMW has done this as well. But you understand that, you know, all the fundamentals, the sort of core part part of your car, your battery Mm. pack and your engine – your motors can all fit in a sort of flat plate, right? You use the, you know, Tesla's Model S started this with 
all the batteries in the floorboard being the structure right. of the car. Your motors are small and you can put whatever chassis you want on top of it. So Volkswagen has developed a skateboard uh, to build a few different cars on it. And Audi, which is owned by the Volkswagen Group, is also planning on building that platform as well. So now you're talking yeah. real commit, right? Where you have a platform team solely focused on the electric parts. So then you can have the coach team, the folks that build the 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 stylish look of the vehicle and the interiors and so forth working separately. So, you, you know, it, it means that you no longer have one-offs. You have lines of cars based on an electric platform. So that, to me, is huge breakthroughs because Tesla's good at a lot of things. The car itself is mm. not the feature, right? The platform's pretty awesome, the batteries and so forth, but you still always have fit and finish issues. And they still are trying to figure out how to really sell a car, right? They don't do annual updates to cars. They don't work on right. styling all that much. Not that the car is right. ugly or anything, but I'll, my biggest problem with Tesla is they yeah. all look alike, right? You can't, you don't have no incentive to get a new model per se. So uh, it's interesting to see the big players come to play. And this is the year also that the battery packs uh, have fallen to sort of magic numbers. Are you talking so about the battery packs in the your car or like the personal battery packs that you would use to, for backup power and stuff? Okay. This is for cars, okay? And so, and that's an important distinction because that means cooling systems, um, mounting systems, reinforcement, like all of the stuff that goes into making a working yeah. battery pack uh, and for any vehicle. So, it's really, in China, they broke through the $100 per mm. kilowatt hour battery pack. It was for a bus wow. order that they actually took an order at that wow. low a price. But $100 per kilowatt hour is kind of the, that was the, always expected to be the magic number where now your electric car costs the same price as a regular right. gasoline powered car. Without subsidies. And so, without subsidies. Like 10 years ago, it was 1100 bucks mm. per kilowatt hour for, for, mm. for battery packs. So the idea that it's under $100, that it's a tenfold decrease mm. in 10 years yeah. is astonishing. In fact, that, that number is a 13% decrease from last Jeez. year. So we're at a tipping point with industrialized, large-scale commercial batteries for vehicles, that they're getting down to that point where, based on commodity pricing, like how much the lithium and the cobalt and the aluminum and so forth costs at the time, that you're getting the very realistic, so reliable So for a second, pricing. let's go back and to the, the, the hybrid, uh, the Prius, which was one of the most popular hybrids. Um, those were subsidized, weren't they? And that's what made them affordable. I, yeah, depending on where you were, different parts of the world subsidized in different ways. And I don't think the Prius was popular because it was a hybrid per se. What the Prius demonstrated is there was a market for cars that focused on efficiency. Yeah. The fact that it happened to be a hybrid was that yeah, okay, whatever. fine, whatever. I, I'm getting right? 50. Right. What I want is a gallon. car that I can yeah. feel good about, right? And and that was the thing. It, I felt you know I don't I don't spend as much on gas. I'm a better that person. That was before for fracking this car. drove down the price of gas. <laughs> <laughs> There's that right. You know yeah. that was one of the responses. And yet the vehicle yeah, still yeah. continued right. And the you know and Tesla made electric cars cool. They weren't golf carts. They weren't compliance mm. cars. They were stinky right. fast. Right. They were crazy high performance. Uh, and, and exciting to drive. And then because he wasn't a car company, he didn't, you know, Sunday Monroe is this sort of famous guy in the car industry who's analyzed Tesla back and forth. It tells you how about how bad a car it is. But at the same time, we'll also tell you, hey, you know what? You know what Tesla has that no other car company has? A central computer that can yeah. be updated. 
Because the way that cars are normally built is you have different contractors, different vendors right. doing different things, right? So your car computer is supplied by the engine company and the entertainment system, another company, and the HVAC system, another company. So they have all these different computers and they don't really get so along. So I've got a story about that. In the, fact in that the Prius, the uh, GPS map was pre-Big Dig in Boston. And so as the right. Big Dig was going on uh, – uh, Kelly, my wife, and her daughter were shopping for colleges up in Boston, and they took my car, and they got lost. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I bet they did. I mean, a you get lost in right, Boston, right? But I mean, anyway. the maps were all different. But no, if you don't maps know about says the- we're underwater right now. <laughs> 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 what the heck? They wanted to go to Quincy Market. Yeah. They ended up in Quincy, Mass. <laughs> <laughs> Close. Yeah. Long story short, we had to take it back to the dealer yeah. in order for them to update the map. But, you know, what right. what you're talking about is it just updates. Yeah. Yeah, of course it does. And in fact, you know, regularly Tesla owners are delighted by the silly things that just got right. added to your app, right? When he when he added the fart Excuse feature me? where it would it would adjust yeah, you could literally pick which seat you wanted the fart to come from and it would adjust the speakers accordingly to make a fart noise. Oh, come on. See, I, if I was going to do a fart I'm feature, I would, up. and upon detecting methane, just automatically roll down the windows. <laughs> well, you're being very practical. I like the fact that he had one called the Falcon 9. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, you know, he, his tendency towards vertical integration, yeah. Elon's, right, which he did, worked well so well for SpaceX. He's still doing it with Tesla. He builds his own seats. Like the the process of making seats is a very different skill set from the yeah. rest of the car. It kind of makes sense to put that out to a specialist, but no, they do mm-hmm. full vertical integration and struggle yeah. accordingly. But having these primary car companies coming into play, like the electric car, yes. is here, and that's exciting. You know that that is a, a fundamental change in our in our planet and in our industry as a whole. To, to see those I've seen the coming. electric car uh, chargers pop up everywhere. In my area, in my town, in supermarket parking yeah. lots, in Chili's parking lots, like uh, not just the airports, you know, they're everywhere. Yeah, and not just at home. And so, uh, there, there's another company I've been following. It's called Arrival, okay. and they are making uh, UPS vans, uh, largely out of plastic, and they're they're solid. They, they're super hmm. utility vehicles, like they're brown plastic wow. all the way down, uh, but straight EVs. But that's not the interesting part about them. The interesting part about them is they're doing this thing called micro factories. So they're literally the opposite of what Elon's doing with his mm. gigafactories, right? Like he, as much as he's sort of innovating on how to build cars, it, he's still coming from a position where he didn't know a lot about fact, factories at scale. And so he fought a lot of the systems. The guys behind Arrival are very experienced car builders. And instead what they said is, can we build a factory you could have it in mm. a neighborhood? And and so rather than building cars and distributing them across a continent, you build them in each city that needs. Well, them. and and final and assembly is what you mean, right? Not the whole building of everything, right? Well, it depends. The, the other thing is they've changed a lot of the components, right? Like I mentioned, these UPS vans are literally made from brown mm. plastic. Like a lot of that forming and stuff can be done locally. Wow! So there's a lot of innovation happening in the space for more bespoke vehicles for more customized uh, uh, opportunities and the skateboard approach to the electric car like how far are we from 
you pick your skateboard and then you can right. pick your chassis. Like what chassis would you like to put on it? Like have a chassis or even be able to change your chassis. Wow. Like sometimes I need a pickup. Sometimes I need a people mover. <laughs> Same chassis. I just, you know, go to the dealer and have them swap. Weird and fun. Although, and I'm not going to include this in the show since this is the longest show ever, but then you get into the whole self-driving artificial intelligence side of why do we own vehicles at all if we can yeah. throw them up on demand. That's not, not going go too there. well, I don't think. Self-driving cars. Uh, it's going to take longer because everything yeah. does. But, they, you know, there were some setbacks. But considering the span of topics. Of accidents and things, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, I think, you know, people are dying in cars right. all the time, but suddenly when there's software that's responsible for it, it's a, it's right. a totally different thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. Is that is that yeah. 2020 or what? Go. Well, it's at least two hours uh, of it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> happy New Year, everybody, and Happy New Year to you, Richard. Happy New Year to you, too, friend. I think uh, it was great to, to get to brain dump all this stuff. That was so much fun. And uh, it, it, good all stuff right. to talk about. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the end.